This is VOCM Open Line. Call 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. The views and opinions of this program are not necessarily those of this station. The biggest conversation in Newfoundland and Labrador starts now. Here's VOCM Open Line host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, January the 4th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's back in the saddle producing the program this morning. You'll be speaking with David when you pick up the phone or give us a shout to get in the queue and on the air. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial... 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long distance, one 590 vocm which is 8626. The topic, entirely up to you. So, Dawson Mercer, you heard Brian Medore mention it this morning. So, a two-goal game last night and a 6-3 victory for the New Jersey Devils. So, that's six points in his last three games. Somehow lost in some of that conversation and looking at Dawson's achievements. Last night was his 200th consecutive game in the NHL. He hasn't missed a game since he debuted on October the 15th of 2021. Last February, he broke Scott Gomez's record for the most consecutive games played to start an NHL career, and that was at 141 games. But in in addition to that, when you look at the current active streaks where most consecutive games played, Mercer is tied for 11th. So pretty impressive stuff, you know. Didn't hasn't been injured, played through COVID, and hasn't missed a single game. And you should hear the New Jersey commentators rave about Dawson Mercer. He's really having a bang up season after such a sluggish start. All right, so one more sleep until the Growlers are back in action for their first homestand of 2024 at the Mary Brown Center, hosting Utah. And if memory serves, that's the first time they'll ever play against Utah in the ECHL. So Growlers fans will be happy to get down to the barn. Okay, let's look at some cost of living issues. You know, you can depends on who you talk to. The biggest issues that people are dealing with, you know, health care, education, housing, what have you. But I think they all fall in under the cost of living envelope. Now, the province has pulled a few levers to try to offer some short-term relief on those fronts. Notably, it's the issue regarding half of the gas tax, the provincial gas tax, and the cutting for the fee for motor, motor vehicle registration in half, taking the tax off home insurance. The trick there is that all those measures are set to expire in the 31st of March of this year. There is some consideration being undertaken by the provincial government as to whether or not they could or should be extended. You know, there's probably a limited amount of stuff that the government can do at this moment. And we'll get into some of the issues about what's really going on with inflation. What's really going on with some of these interest rate numbers? Because some of that story regarding the rate of pay for the top 100 CEOs in the country, completely lost in that story. It's one thing to know, yes, CEOs are going to make more than their worker uh, working bees. But 246 times more than everybody else, breaking every record in the book. And of course, in large part, the single largest contributor to the rate of pay is through bonuses based on revenue and profit. And that is pretty much driven by inflation. So it does beg the question, what is really going on here? You know, their pleasure is our collective pain. Anyway, when we had a conversation yesterday with the PC candidate for the by-election at Conception Bay, East Bell Island, you know, they were talking about doing better work with the budget, better control of the budget, you know, making some of the required cuts. Okay. Then I asked her about, you know, ideas on the revenue side, because if we think we're going to be able to get back to a balance simply by slashing, and my, my pe- people might refer to as austerity, that comes with a significant downside as well. Now, I'm not arguing that we shouldn't get our, our ducks in a row and do a better job managing the books and how we spend and where we spend and how much we spend. But when asked that question, Miss Neri didn't really have any ideas on the revenue side. She's not currently sitting in government, so okay. 
But Mark, one of the listeners, made, I think, a really wise comment on that front. He says, one way to increase investment and revenue is to reduce bureaucratic red tape and unnecessary regulations that do nothing but deter that aim. Not wrong. So sometimes when we have these types of conversations, people go all the way to the end of the line before we even talk about what regulations might be unduly cumbersome, unnecessary, or redundant. No one's saying, you know, throw caution to the wind and open the doors and don't regulate anything and don't go through required processes for approvals. No one's saying that. But no question, government provincially, federally is an unwieldy behemoth unnecessarily difficult to deal with in many uh, many forms and fashions so mark's not wrong you want to increase revenue it's all about investment coming in not about increasing taxes it's all about investment dollars coming to the province regardless of what we're talking about and there will be controversies regarding expanded mining opportunities in labrador the wind to hydrogen ammonia projects all those types of things but mark's right the bureau the red tape the bureaucracy and the time it takes whether we even talk about building a home you know by the time you identify a parcel of land go through engineering and design permitting and get those shovels in the ground it just takes too long the same thing can be said for big business and big industry. You know, they're not really interested in trying to claw through the murky, endless regulatory issues and bureaucracy and red tape. So on the revenue side, that's one thing. And what do you think of the cost of living issues? Because if government's going to extend them, that does indeed hamper revenue. And what does that mean at the end of the year, the fiscal year for the government? Potentially, if re- revenue is increased, it means more borrowing to put us right back in the predicament we find ourselves in today. You want to take it on? Let's go. All right. A little bit of relief at the pumps. But there's more to this story. So price of gasoline is down two cents. Diesel drops about five cents. Furnace oil is down four cents. Uh, Stove oil on the island dropped by 3.74 cents. But lost in the story somewhat is the fact that the PUB has indeed approved the carbon price adjustments effective January the 11th for 3.74 cents per litre on gas and 4.17 cents on diesel. And this is all about the federal government's clean fuel regulations. We knew it was coming, and we've heard from the Premier in particular saying that these clean fuel regulations, whether or not you think they're a good idea... They are unfair to the province. We may indeed end up paying about three times more than our counterparts in Atlantic Canada. It simply doesn't make any sense. This will have far and wide implications. You know, when the issue here is to see the emissions from burning any of these fuels to drop based on changing the mix of the fuel, you know, how how come it's not incumbent on the refineries? I mean, they're making off like bandits here. So while we are going to pay the price here, as opposed to the refineries, if they don't live up to obligations to change the mix to see a reduction in emissions, then they're focusing on the wrong crowd. You know, we're struggling. Big business, not so much. So anyway, you want to take it on. We can do a clean fuel regulation adjustment coming on the 11th of this month. Okay. And the issue regarding gas, we had a call from Larry yesterday from Change Islands. No gas deliveries for almost three weeks. Now, apparently, uh, Derek Bragg's office, uh, we wish it was Mr. Bragg well, he's suffering with some ill health, and the Premier are trying to see what they can do. No one's going to be able to force a gas company to make the deliveries. Now, Ultramar continues to make deliveries of home heating oils. But this story is very much akin to some of the stories we've heard from other communities that have lost some services. In this case, of course, gas is essential. You know, if there's a power outage or for medical transport or whatever the case may be, and you know it's one thing to say, well, just get on the ferry, go get your fuel. But there's Transport Canada laws that restrict the amount of gas that you can bring onto the ferries. This story is very much like what we've heard when the banks close their doors. 
So for the one little convenience shop that sells the gas and uh, change islands, this is obviously going to be a problem. Now, the folks who sell at the retail level gasoline don't make huge money on the gas side, but it's the other offerings that they have in the store. So like when the bank closes. So say Fogo Island. Bank closes, people need to do their banking, so they'll travel elsewhere, and while they are elsewhere, maybe with more and different shopping options, they spend a a bunch of money somewhere outside their own community, and consequently it becomes bigger than the bank being gone. It's about other businesses that will see money that would generally be flowing into their cash register, their till, to be spent elsewhere. So these stories, and Change Islands is vastly different because not having a bank is not necessarily an emergency, but gas is 100% an essential offering. But, you know, you wonder about the future for some small communities when things like those services and amenities are taken away because once they're gone, they're hard to get back. You want to take it on? We can do it. All right. Still very little information about the cyber incident at Munn's Grenfell campus. Faculty are speaking out now, worried about the fact that they weren't even directly informed until three days after a press release from the university. So, of course, whatever's been compromised, we're not entirely sure. Emergency protocols were brought in, and rightfully so. Now they're wondering about what Monday looks like and how they're going to use whatever computer to deliver the curriculum. There's some thought that they might be told to use their own personal computers, But boy, oh boy, imagine trying to do that with your own personal information on it that may indeed be all of a sudden, because you're using it to teach, may indeed be compromised as well. So if you're part of the faculty association, maybe we should reach out to the faculty association, uh, David, see if they'd like to come on and spell spell out their concerns a little clearer or certainly better than I can do. Uh, Okay. In regards to Memorial University, this is not just about... Mon and or post-secondary, I would imagine this is also pertaining to your own son or daughter who's in either junior high or maybe even younger grades, high school for sure, but certainly in post-secondary. And it's the advent and the popularity of artificial intelligence. So whether it be chat GPT or Grammarly is another popular one out there, you can imagine the temptation to know that you can just put some text into the artificial intelligence platform and it will spit out your report. Now, there is software being used by professors to try to identify when students have taken the shortcut of using artificial intelligence instead of their own research and brain power to uh, present their reports or whatever exam that they're working on. So, you know, if you're caught, the penalties could be pretty severe. Now, there has been a couple of students accused of plagiarism who have said, look, I absolutely did not do it. Further examination saw the accusation of plagiarism withdrawn. But it's certainly worth talking to your son or daughter who is any of those levels of school to just tell them, you know, if you get caught, and we know the temptation is real, that shortcut is just so easy. But the penalties could be all the way up to academic probation and or suspension. So, again, it's probably worth having that conversation. And I don't think we've firmly wrapped our minds around exactly what artificial intelligence means. You know, we know today it can be about plagiarism, but it can be much bigger issue than that. Even some of the godfathers of AI are warning that maybe what they thought was a great idea and now that the genie is out of the bottle, some of the problems presented by artificial intelligence may not be fully understood at this moment in time. But in the interim, it's probably worth telling your loved one who's involved in any level of school that please don't do that because if you get caught in you don't learn anything either, right? So you just simply put it in, it spits out your work and then you submit it. You didn't learn anything, you didn't do anything, you didn't research anything, you don't have a better understanding of anything so anyway that's out there 
I write big busts out in Central, cocaine and other drugs. I mean, this is just all too common. And of course, there's a shotgun with ammunition as part of the uh, things seized. 1.2 kilograms of cocaine. There was methamphetamines and there was hydromorphone and other what they call various controlled substances. So we're not immune to knowing. Maybe we're just getting numb to the fact that these types of busts are becoming really, really frequent. But I'll just throw this out there for your consideration. Over the holidays, there was a lot of commercials on television talking about drugs, drug use, abuse, and overdose. So some 20 Canadians are dying every single day to an overdose in the toxic supply of drugs. I mentioned before we went off the air for the holidays back in 2023 that in Vancouver, pardon me, in BC, in the month of November, 200 people died as a result of an overdose, as a result of the toxic supply. Seven a day. We'll talk about all the different crises that we're facing, but this one is one, isn't it? You know, there's not much conversation about it. You know, you hear some guidance and different requests and moves being made in the province of British Columbia, but I don't hear a whole, whole lot about it around here. There are some warnings every now and then from the RNC that there might be a tainted supply on the street, but that doesn't do a whole lot for folks who are addicted and looking for their fix and buying these drugs, which may indeed include fentanyl or other harmful toxic substances. And Canadians are dying hand over fist. I don't know why there's not more conversation on that front, but c'est la vie. All right. As we continue to look down the road about what 2024 might look like and some issues that may be dealt with, there's a few that are in the very short term in the offing. Consolidation of some 60 ambulance service contracts into one centralized service. So there's an RFP out, and the responses are due very shortly here, early in 24, about a company that may indeed be brought in to design and to manage the road ambulance service and the air ambulance service. We don't really know what it looks like. There was three consulting contracts awarded. I don't know if we're any closer to having a better understanding of how that works, but while we are waiting and while the consultants did their work and while we're waiting for submissions to the RFP, we have still a major issue here with the numbers of paramedics that are burnt and are potentially thinking about leaving the profession and or continuing as a paramedic elsewhere in the country. So time is of the essence. You know, we know the numbers of red alerts that we've seen, whether that be issues with offloading patients, transferring them to the uh, control for those working in the emergency rooms, and the disparity between the pay for rural and urban and the different contracts and the on-call hours and all the rest of it, the difficulty to keep paramedics in certain parts of the province, including Labrador. But, you know, Let's see how quickly that can get done. And as we look further down the road in 2024, we're still trying to get some status and progress update from Carl Diamond and the Diamond Group regarding the Stephenville Airport. I know in the general public, it is certainly ruled by cynicism and skepticism that any of the promises uh, made by Carl Diamond will ever come to pass. You know, the name of the airport has changed. The sale has been complete. But other than some of the federal government money doing some runway work out there, not so sure much else has been done. So we'll, it will extend an invitation to Mr. Diamond again in the very near future. We tried last year during December to get him on. He didn't have time. But we'll look for that. We'll also look down the road, for instance, in the fishery. So there are a couple of big stories out there. We know that the ASP, the Association for Seafood Producers, and the FFAW and the provincial government are in the midst of talks to rejig the price setting uh, system or process. The way it's currently administered just really doesn't achieve the right price necessarily. They said the quiet part out loud last year when we talked about snow crab. So both sides put in a price and the panel picks one or the other. No compromise, no down the middle, none of that stuff. 
So whether it be the percentage of the market price that goes to one side or the other to be fixed and firm and understood going into the season, that's likely what's going to come out the other end, but we need to see that announced. In addition, the FFAW have gone to the federal government asking the feds to buy out shrimp license holders, I think predominantly on the west coast of the province, where the shrimp, uh, their catch is down and the cost to operate are way up. So what they're hoping there is not only the license bought out, but maybe for some of these harvesters who are not going to retire to be allowed to fish for the redfish. Apparently, redfish is the strongest uh, stock regarding biomass that's out there in Atlantic Canada, some 3 million metric tons. Maybe Mr. Spingle or someone from the union would like to come on. So it's not necessarily good for filleting a fish, but I wonder what the market looks like for redfish, uh, period. So it's out there in abundance, and it may indeed be a good opportunity beyond fishing low-catch rate shrimp, but the market, of course, will be the be-all and end-all on that front. Also looking down the road... There's going to have to be some amendments to the Crown Lands Act and or the entire system this year. There just has to be. When Plyman Forsey put forward a private member's resolution, which was simply rejected as opposed to debated, as opposed to picking apart what might work, what might not work, we're right back where we started. We've talked about it many, many times, and of course there's been a couple of poster families for this particular conversation, whether we had a furlong and his farming operation out of Bloomfield, and of course now that the diamonds from Catalina have settled to the tune of some $10,000 to purchase the land from Crown Lands, there can be, if no changes are made, there's the possibility that who knows how many people are out there that will find themselves in the exact same circumstance and all the monies and time and frustration it's going to take to quiet these titles, to see some active work done on Crown Lands. We've got a pretty disjointed, disconnected system here. So we'll look down the road and see what amendments or changes are coming on that front. How are we doing on the phone there, Dave? Let's get her going. If you're in town or anywhere in the province, today is a good day to get on the show. Maybe last one. Again, you know, we have very quietly slipped into a P3 world, you know, public-private partnership. It's pretty much all public infrastructure now is being constructed on exactly that. It's going to be the way when and if they ever get off their duff and start building a new prison to replace HMP. We look at the two long-term care facilities in Gander and Grand Falls, Windsor, 260-bed units each. Lo and behold, when final inspections came to pass, that we saw hundreds of deficiencies. So it's not unusual to see deficiencies identified through the inspection process, but you wonder whether or not the P3 model is a component as to why we're identifying so many. And in the long-term care world, that meant that more people that would indeed be occupying the beds in those facilities remained in hospital, occupying a hospital bed, which has absolutely contributed to the backlog in surgeries here in the province. Also, and it was downplayed by the member for Corner Brook, uh, Jerry Byrne, Minister Byrne, when there was some 2,700 deficiencies identified in the construction phase at the Western Memorial Regional Hospital. The minister says it's not unusual. Okay, I don't know what would be an acceptable number of deficiencies, but it does extend the conversation about whether or not we're on the right track for short-term relief and potential long-term pain by solely relying on P3s to get where we're going to build new infrastructure, replace aging infrastructure, and you know the rest. All right, we're on Twitter. Or VOCM Open Line, follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. But my favorite is when you take the opportunity to join us live on the air, which you can do during this break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on line number one. Say good morning to the president of Memorial University of Newfoundland Faculty Association. That's Josh Leposky. And good morning, Josh. You're on the air. 
Hello, thanks for having me. Happy to have you on the show, sir. Thanks for making time. So, sure. much like every other cyber attack here in the country and in this province, you know, you look back at the Meditech system hack, we get very little detail. What does your group know about what happened out at Grenfell? Well, really the same as everyone else who's had a look at anything released in, in public at this point. Um, so this goes back to an article in the Mun Gazette on December 29th, um, essentially conveying that there had been some sort of cybersecurity issue, but any uh, details about uh, what that issue is uh, remains um, unclear to anyone who uh, is outside of the IT security folks at, at MUN. So that would be all of the professors and, and other workforce. So the confusion here is not only that there's been some sort of hack, we don't want what kind of information has been compromised or jeopardized and how it's going to be used, but it's what money brings. So what do you and your group know about how the professors are going to use whatever computer belong to who to try to deliver the curriculum? Yes. Well, that actually remains to be seen. Um, the plan, such as it is, is um, that uh, teaching faculty, research faculty at Grenfell, um, as we currently understand it, are unable to use any IT equipment that has previously been provided by the Grenfell campus, uh, and that they have to uh, return any of those devices uh, to the Grenfell campus if they're being used off campus. Uh, or, you know, in their research laboratories uh, and whatnot. Um, so there has been a suggestion that teaching and research uh, staff may use their personal devices as a kind of stopgap measure, uh, but the logistics around that are... Um, deeply problematic since uh, we've also been told that if a personal device is used, we are not to move files uh, either from the Grenfell IT infrastructure onto that personal device or vice versa from the personal device back to the uh, Grenfell IT infrastructure. So that you know, it, it's just an open question of how do you then actually use the, your personal equipment to, to do your job, whether it's research, teaching, or both. That's one part of the reason that that uh, is problematic. Another part of this course, if one is be, uh, using your personal device, you're now uh, exposing your personal information, whatever it may be, on your own devices to whatever the security risks are uh, that um, have been opened up by this uh, cybersecurity incident. So there's really a huge range of uh, unanswered uh, questions, uh, and yet the people who deliver the core mission of the university, the teaching and the research, are being given really just, you know, hours of notice to completely attempt to try and uh, rejigger their, their teaching and research uh, by Monday morning. So basically on the fly? On the fly which is not good for anybody, student and or professor. So, you know, when you think about cybersecurity and what would, might be attractive to these hackers, so banks and hotels and uh, lenders and, you know, water treatment facilities, electrical grids, those types of things that have major impact, but apparently this is a bit, a bit of a trend across the uh, university sector in Canada. Any idea why that might be? 
Um, well, yeah, that's a good question. I think there's a huge range of possibilities there. Um, again, without actually knowing what this specific cybersecurity incident actually constitutes, even something like a ransomware attack is uh, maybe worthwhile enough, you know, to uh, if, if the attackers can extract, you know, even a few thousand dollars. I have no idea. That's totally speculative at mm -hmm. this point. Um, but... Um, uh, you know, universities are um, large institutions which uh, have, uh, you know, as the technical people, uh, a pretty uh, uh, broad attack surface for these kinds of um, these kinds of attacks. Uh, lots of people uh, using the IT infrastructure that is part and parcel of, of daily work and, and life at, at a university. So it's an appealing. Uh, target, I would imagine, from an attacker's point of view. Yeah, I suppose even just something beyond ransomware, even if there's any IP, uh, intellectual property that's compromised, but of course there's a huge <laughs> deal in academia at the post-secondary yeah. level. Uh, anything else you'd yeah. like to say on that front this morning? Well, I mean, I think at this point um, the administration really needs to be as forthcoming as possible. Um, it is a public institution, um, so you know uh, the people who uh, work there deserve that information, as does the broader public, of course. It's purely speculative on on my part, but you know these kinds of incidents could certainly be related to ongoing budget cuts that are making it essentially impossible to uh, for individual departments uh, to uh, uh, adhere to MUN's own IT policies because there is insufficient funding to renew uh, IT devices, um, uh, you know, to the most up-to-date uh, devices. As well as you know the, the the sort of hollowing out of IT security expertise that a, that an institution like uh, Memorial needs, people who have those expertise can find considerably better working conditions elsewhere uh, as budgets are are cut at MUN. So whether those are uh, those kinds of budget cuts are direct causes of this cybersecurity is totally speculative on my part, but if at some point we learn more, I wouldn't be surprised to, to learn that that's part of the picture. Nor would I, because when we look at the attack of the Meditech system, there was red flags that weren't dealt with, weren't attended that's to, right. and so now there's a proposed class action on that front. Uh, last year, I will say, Memorial University experience say, tumultuous year between the administration, the faculty, the students, of course, whether it be because of the strike and all the move towards collegial governance, expansion for seats for representatives from the faculty association on the board of regents. But of course, you mentioned bu budget cuts, and that was pretty contentious stuff last year. Is there any lingering thoughts there, or how do you think this collegial governance is going to work to try to reduce those tensions and standoff standoffs that we've seen? Yeah. Well, I mean, budget cuts have been chronic at MUNS for more than a decade now. Um, you know, we're we're down um, uh, roughly 30% in real dollar terms since 2015. That's a third of the overall budget. Um, you, you know, you you cannot operate a university that w with 30% uh, less of the dollars than it had 10 years ago, even as enrollments go up, uh, research intensifies, teaching classes get enlarged in order to deal with those kinds of budget cuts. So, um, 
you know, the, the resolution here is the appropriate and proper funding of the university. Uh, and ultimately, that's dependent on uh, government to do that. I really appreciate the time this morning, Josh. Thanks for this. Uh, final thoughts to you. Uh, well, thanks. I mean, my thoughts are just with all of my colleagues at Grenfell who uh, have been put in this, you know, untenable situation of scrambling uh, once again because uh, we're, we were not part of the, the planning for this emergency um, approach to this to this incident. So my thoughts are with them. And I would just, if you're uh, at Grenfell and hearing this, please get in touch with the Munfa Main office to uh, let us know about uh, what issues this cybersecurity is is having for you on your teaching and research. We appreciate making time for the show. Have a good season. Sure. Thank you, Patty. Take good care. Bye-bye. Okay. That's Josh Leposky. pardon me. He's the president of the Munns Faculty Association. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're speaking with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the Secretary Treasurer at the FFAW. That's Jason Spingle. Good morning, Jason. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. Uh, give us an update as to what you're working on with the federal government regarding shrimp license holders on the West Coast. Yeah, and before I do, uh, I would like to wish uh, you and all your listeners a happy new year and uh, all the best for 2024. Thank you very much, and the same to you and yours. For sure. Uh, Yeah, no, so certainly, uh, I mean, I guess the two issues are connected, uh, shrimp, golf shrimp, and and the redfish. Uh, Just a bit of background there. You know, we've seen uh, the science decline for shrimp over the last several years. However, uh, in the past, Two years, and this year in particular, um, things have uh, declined to a point, I mean, much quicker than anyone really thought. And uh, what we're looking at, uh, we had they, uh, <coughs> expedited the uh, science process because of the concerns, I guess, in the lobby we had with our, our uh, industry colleagues throughout the Gulf, Quebec, New Brunswick, and others, indigenous groups, that fish shrimp. And uh, basically... The, uh, they have some different scenarios uh, on what the quotas could be. Uh, there's going to be drastic cuts, uh, and we're already at low levels. But, I mean, they're even talking about, uh, for the western areas, that Quebec and New Brunswick fish, no uh, zero moratorium is a potential scenario. So um, within that, you know, we're dealing with, uh, we have, uh, by DFO's own statement, the largest biomass, uh, of uh, ground fish uh, ever recorded in Atlantic Canada, even compared to northern cod, over 3 million metric tons of redfish. And, uh, you know, one of the issues, I think we've discussed that before, is the size. Uh, and I don't know if it's due to uh, the environment or food availability or just because such a large biomass, the growth has been slower. But in any case, uh, we're at a point now where uh, well, we're past the point where these fleets, our fleet, including Quebec and New Brunswick, I mean, I say we've all been speaking together, are going to need uh, some help right now um, in order to uh, to make it through. And, you know, these 90-plus uh, boats that fish shrimp, uh, you know, four to five crew members on every boat, uh, we have uh, 32 or 33 now in Newfoundland, uh, our fleet. Uh, we support three plants. 
there's three other plants, uh, you know, so we're talking about uh, a lot of jobs on the line here. So, you know, we uh, we had the opportunity to uh, have a, a, a good session with the minister. I was supposed to be in Quebec in person, but there was the whole uh, filibuster thing that happened there, I think. And she did give us an, over an hour and a half of her time there last month, and we had a good discussion with her on those issues. What's the history look like when the feds have been asked to buy out licenses? There was some controversy about the Northern Peninsula regarding shrimp licenses some years ago and how the money got divvied up. But what does the history look like on that front? Yeah, well, you have, you know, uh, three major programs. I think that, you know, the Cod Moratorium, the NCARP, I guess, is uh, that was before my time in a sense. TAGS was just finishing, uh, which was also mainly tied to groundfish, the Atlantic groundfish strategy in the, in the mid to late 90s. And the one that I uh, was, I guess, in, since I've been with the union, uh, was the lobster, uh, LERP, Lobster Inter- uh, Enterprise Retirement Program. And basically, you know, that's, all those programs were voluntary. No one been forced to leave. Uh, people had the opportunity to offer their licenses. Uh, there's, um, and, you know, those programs were... I would say uh, successful. Certainly, you know, my direct experience with the lobster, the people that wanted to go went, you know, they they put in, uh, it was a reverse auction process in that case. We'll see, you know, I guess there's, and there's always parameters around these things. But again, people made their own choice and uh, and they they moved on and, and that left uh, more resource. And we've seen that success with lobster and, you know, the other resources that are available like on the south and west coast, there's less people share, you know, uh, that that need to, to get a share of the, the pie, if you will, and has made it uh, certainly much more stable, uh, stable and profitable. So, you know, the thing is here, uh, I think we're at a much more dramatic point for this fleet, the, the Gulf shrimp fleets right now. Uh, but we have that redfish resource. These fleets, uh, you know, our fleet in four hour. And the Quebec and New Brunswick, uh, uh, we have the capacity to catch that redfish, to bring it on shore, to get it processed, to maintain those jobs in those plants and all the other jobs, as we know, the truckers and uh, all the uh, spinoff jobs that go with these uh, major industries. And, uh, you know, the vessels uh, and the crews are there to do that. So this is what we need. But even with that, uh, there's going to be a transition given the size of the redfish in the markets. Uh, that's going to need to be developed over uh, over the short term, I would say. Uh, but, um, you know, a, bu- a buyback program is certainly something we discussed with the minister and something that we feel is needed to reduce the numbers to stabilize things. So, you know, like everything else, we'll look at the strength of stock for regardless of whatever species, spawning, biomass and otherwise, but it'll always boil down to the almighty market, whether or not they're willing to pay X dollars for it or whether they want it, period. Now, if people are familiar with the redfish, it's not really a fillet type of fish. So what does the market even look like for that product? Yeah, well, there's, you know, a certain amount of uh, bait that's, that's being used now. Like, it's a good, it's a great bait for lobster, uh, I think there's been more success with snow crab and these fisheries. Um, it, it, to your point, at the size they are now, to fill it is very difficult because you need you need basically to get uh, a certain you know yield from the fillet, and is basically you're looking at uh, 250 gram fish now on average. So it's not a very big fillet, I guess. But you know, whole fish I know in Asia is uh, is something that's uh, very popular. And uh, but certainly, you know, I think the fish need to be a little bit bigger before under current markets. But again, some of these markets might develop. So that's what we're saying. We know uh, 
you know, if you look at what type of quota we could have, you're talking about 3 million tonnes and something like very conservative 4%, you know, uh, over the next 20 years, uh, that's uh, that's a lot more than what we're kind of, in, uh, you know, uh, talking about right now. So there's going to need to be a transition, and, that, you know, that's uh, that'll allow processors and people that, you know, marketers to, to build on this, right? But uh, we know... Uh, that in the short term or the next year or two, what we want to do is is allow those that want to exit to do so with that dignity on their own terms. Uh, and what we what we want to preserve, we have the like I said, the vessels are there, the plants are there. We don't need to um, invest more money to be able to catch and process this fish. That uh, that the knowledge and technology and expertise is there. So. When we talk about processing capacity, because, you know, now there's a new way for DFO to measure the strength of stock for, say, for instance, northern cod. So if indeed we see an increase in the, uh, in the total allowable catch in cod, what does processing really look like for redfish? I mean, do we have the actual capacity in play now if indeed there's an increase in the cod quota? Um well, I think uh, we do. We do. And, uh, you know, uh, I guess the uh, the crab was uh, delayed last year. We all know that story. I mean, if the crab fishery, and that's our goal, is to have a, a, a regular, uh, er, very early April, I'll say April 1 start to the crab fishery. And we do have, a you know, thankfully a high tack of crab now. But, uh, you know, that crab fishery, if say that's our focus to get that through and we can start the cod fishery in um when we've started you know late july august and we have the capacity to certainly produce a lot more cod uh but you know there are some you know i visited several plants this summer and uh, as i've said um you know the workers themselves uh one thing for management to say we're we're having uh, labor issues but you know a lot of the workers of an airline time say you know we don't have the number of workers we had. A lot of the workers are getting older. You know, we talk about new people coming in, temporary foreign workers. Uh, you know, I'd like to see, a, 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 you know, building towards having people come in and being Newfoundlanders and Labradorians and having these good, you know, uh, long, you know, uh, full season jobs and 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 to stay here and and be a part of uh, be a part of our community. But so these are and you know and there's there's other technologies that I know companies are investing in as well. So you know there's there's more capacity there if we can get a a good uh, transition from fishery to fishery. Um, and you know, but there are some there are some labor challenges, but I think we can work through those uh, going forward. Right? Last one before I let you go. So I mentioned off the top as we look down what 2024 is going to bring. You know what has got to happen inside your industry is some sort of restructuring of the price setting process. The panel system simply does not work the way it's supposed to work. So where are we? I think it's all go, it's all going to boil down to what percentage of the market value will be associated with either side, the ASP or the FFAW and your members. So what's the status of that conversation? Yeah, so we're actually in uh, in process now, you know, in uh, dealing with ASP and their members and aligning uh, with our negotiating committee to work towards uh, to use the uh, the uh, report of the price uh, formula price report there that uh, chaired by Mr. Blackwood. And, um, you know, we're in the process right now of doing all the analysis and uh, – that's that's where we feel we need to get to, and we have a mandate from our leadership, from our inshore council, to pursue that. And uh, we'll, you know, we've already uh, 
We've already uh, communicated with our negotiating, crab negotiating committee, and we're starting that work uh, as we speak. To uh, that's where we need to get. And like I said, I've referenced before, Patty, the formulas that, that you know the upheaval we had in lobster, the upheaval we had in halibut, and uh, we, you know we had formulas in for those uh, species, and we've had overall general um, general. Uh, productivity in those fisheries without without any interruption so don't you know certainly agree with the statement you made and uh, that's what we're working towards and hopefully we'll get there with a you know with an agreement that that everyone can uh, move forward with so is the target to have it in place prior to the snow crab season because that's the one that's going to derail it again absolutely 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 yep i mean we're gonna you know it's not about rushing anything, but uh, that'll be the goal, you know, and that's why we're starting now and not in April, if you will. So we certainly heard that from our membership, and I think that's the sentiment out there from, from anyone who has any interest in the fishery, and that's certainly what we're working on. So. I said that was the last one, but I got one more. I'm not going to ask yeah. you to speak for uh, Ryan Cleary or CNL or anybody that you don't represent, but, you know, when you look at the success of the Labrador or, uh, the Labrador Shrimp Company co-op and the Fogo Island co-op and CNL talking about co-ops and trying to interest harvesters, private enterprise owners, to engage that conversation, do you hear that amongst your members? Because I've always been surprised that there's not more cooperatives, especially in the fishery. Yeah, well, I, I guess, you know, I'll speak for the shrimp company. I certainly attended their AGM a couple of times now, and they say, well, they're, they're, they've been they're referenced as a co-op, but really they're uh, a company that's uh, have a board of directors of harvesters, right? But I guess, they, you know, they operate similarly. You have Fogo Island Co-op, Petty Harbor Co-op. Yeah, I guess to your point, I guess I'm somewhat surprised. If you look at, uh, you know, the two areas that, uh, that are co-ops, um, you know they're they're based in a geographic region, um, and um, you know they, they certainly seem to have some success. So, yeah, I guess uh, I think that's a model that can work in certain areas, and uh, you know we'll see we'll see if that develops more in the future. But uh, yeah, I guess that's uh, you know what we want to do right now is back to your point for this year certainly is to work with everyone to try to get uh, certainly through ASP to get uh, get a. Uh, agreement in place, uh, you know, before crab fishery starts, so we can we can have a we can have a good uh, good start to our fishery. And like you said, and that because that affects not only the crab fishery, it affects uh, the other fisheries as well, including northern cod, which were on a very positive note. Uh, I guess you heard the news on that last fall with the uh, reanalysis by DFO is now in the cautious zone. So there's uh, looking like there's potentially. Uh, uh, much more opportunities there too i appreciate the time this morning jason yeah thanks patty and uh look forward to chatting with you again soon here here take care thanks right, bye. bye-bye jason spingle is the secretary treasurer at the fvaw okay let's take a break don't go away welcome back to the show uh let us go line number one good morning barry you're on the air good morning patty thanks for taking my call happy new year to you all happy new year to you as well if you have us on speaker can you take us off so we can hear you clearer uh Again, Patty? If you have us on speaker or something, can you take us off so we can hear you a little more, bit more clear? Yeah, sure. I'm not going to be able to hear you that well, but that's okay. Hang on now. How's that, Patty? That's much better. Thank you. What's on your mind? Okay. So, Patty, I'd uh, just like to talk about briefly a couple of topics here. Uh, first one is sharing the harvest. Our season is over now, coming up uh, this weekend, I believe. Yes, it's Sunday coming. Uh, <clears throat> A little disappointed, Patty, with the overall moose contributions. 
we only got one full moose con- contrib- uh, donated to us, and uh, plus we had a charity list itself, so that made two full moose. But it has been a successful year, and it is, you know, starting starting off with baby steps, and, you know, still a lot of people don't know about it, food banks don't know about it, so it's, it's still a process, right? Yeah, and I mean, it's, you know, I actually spoke with someone that I just happened to run into when I was walking down Water Street doing some Christmas shopping. They got some moose from the feed bank as a result of your program. They were thrilled. Awesome. Awesome, Patty. So what's the uptake looking like? Because it's one thing to get the authorization from the government, quite another to get the hunters out there, not only to be aware of it, but to participate in it. And I, you know, I'm not going to say broad stroke speak for every hunter out there, but very likely... You know, they have a hard time disposing of an entire moose. You know, you can give away a ton of moose. Some of my moose hunting buddies, they tell me to a man that, you know, when you down a big moose, it really does feed a lot of folks, and you give away an awful lot of moose to ensure that it doesn't end up freezer burnt in the garbage. Yes, Patty. The biggest obstacle to that, and that's a very good point. That's a t- that's the point that we're trying to overcome, Patty. The, b- the biggest obstacle to, the, to it is that, uh, we still hold such a high value on the game meat itself that we tend to hoard it, and to the point that where it becomes no longer edible and has to be thrown out in the garbage. So that's what we're trying to address: is that you know, make, make the donation now instead of waiting until later on and then looking down the bottom of the freezer and taking it and shaking your head and, and having to throw it out. And that's a shameful waste of wildlife resource, and especially even worse now with, with so much of the food insecurity issue going on, Patty. Yeah, I mean, it's very real, even if it's about food insecurity or price pressures and the kind of food you can get at a food bank. And, you know, the high protein, absolutely organic, perfect kind of meal that you can get with some uh, ground moose. So uh, hopefully the program gets even more and more popular with the hunters. I'm, I'm sure it will, Pat. I'm sure it will. And uh, just another note on that, we just had a, uh, 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 a collaboration with the Newfoundland Labrador Outfitters Association here a couple weeks ago, Patty, uh, where they uh, donated two deep freezers, two, two, share, uh, two food banks here in St. John's. One is Sharon Harvest. I'm sorry. One is uh, Single Parents Association, and the other one is uh, Connections for Seniors. Yeah, great stuff. So we had a call yesterday, some serious concern about the consultations that engage in now regarding amendments to the Wildlife Act and the Endangered Species Act. You know, the suggestion was they're going too far and they're trying to play gotcha games with the hunters out there, the way that the fines and the possibility for prison is being considered by the government. What do you think about the consultations and some of the, the suggestions that are coming in? Well, Patty, I was, I was calling you about that too this morning on the, about the Engage NL uh, survey, and I am... I am uh, uh, pleased to see that the government, I believe that this might be the fourth Engage NL survey. And the majority of the issues on these uh, Engage NL surveys, Patty, are what we, the Newfoundland Outdoor Heritage Association and Newfoundland Sports Magazine, have been uh, lobbying the government as early as 2015. So to see these surveys come out, and as well, most of the issues in the surveys get implemented, it's, it's, it's a good thing. Um, you know, and how long, how, how long, Patty? How many years have been we've been talking to together on on the show about the increase in fines and penalties and everything else about poaching? I mean, for me, it's incumbent on those who have a hunting license to abide by the rules. Now, if enforcement officers are going out of their way to play gotcha games and, you know, not to show some gray area consideration like this one fella, he put his license to hunt 
in a different vehicle and when he was uh, asked to present it the bylaw the enforcement officer went right back to his home with him he got the license out of his glove box it was still fined so i don't know if that's an opportunity for a bit of leniency but no matter who you are what you are have a license to drive have a license to hunt have a license to process fish abiding by the rules and regulations that are right there in front of you seems pretty cut and dry to me Indeed, indeed, and you're right, Patty. But they're also uh, with that gentleman. I heard him talking yesterday. Uh, there's, there has to be some uh, certain type or certain type of leniency, as you suggested. And to to forget your hunting license, is, you know, and especially for a senior senior hunter, that's that, that's to be expected. And you know, leniency is what was required there. Instead of taking the uh, the, the situation so much further than that. Yeah, I mean, and I don't know exactly where leniency begins or ends, but sometimes a bit of common sense to be applied. You know, it's one thing to have the license on you or not have a license period. If you don't have a license, we get you for poaching, right? And if you do have a license, we understand that maybe, just maybe, you just had a lapse of memory or judgment and had, you know, you took your truck instead of your car and the car had the license in the glove box. I mean, there's just got to be something there. Anyway, Barry, anything else you'd like to say this morning? Yes, uh, quickly, Patty. About uh, this uh, this uh, Sunday just passed. Now it was the end of the big game hunting season for most uh, spe- for most of the uh, island. In uh, Labrador, is still open till I believe middle of April, and the Grosmore National Park is still open. Just a uh, reminder to all hunters, if successful or not, to send in your license return. To that provides them very important information to the government and we've been lobbying to get that brought back as well and one final point there patty and that's on the wind generators that's being proposed uh i'm i'm not in, into it a whole lot but i did see one piece of information come across my uh, screen and that's a very p- important piece and I, I haven't heard too much talk about it and that is about the uh about the blades on the wind turbines themselves they are not recyclable they cannot be burnt. They're made of fiberglass. And what I've seen, Patty, and I stand to be corrected too, what I've seen in the in the, in the email is that these uh, the, the blades for the turbines, there's no there's no plan in place for them, and they seem to be just laid down where, wherever they're to and just discarded because there there was no uh, uh, legislation or wording in the legislation to prevent the uh, the this type of action being happen being happened. So. You take, uh, say, well, three blades on a wind turbine. No, that's not too bad. But then how many turbi- how many turbines are there going to be? There's going to be quite a lot. At times that by three. And then all those turbine blades around in the country spewed. That's going to be a fine mess. And that's, I haven't heard too much about that either. Fair enough. The size and the scope. I mean, these turbines are not your grandfather's turbines. They're not what you see up the southern shore or down in Ramia. They're absolutely massive. I don't know about repurposing them. I don't know enough about it to speak to that in any terms. But even if the proposal uh, from John Risen World Energy GH2 goes to its fruition, 328 wind turbines occupying some 40% of the Port of Port Peninsula, that's significant. I mean, these turbines are taller than the Confederation Building. I always have a hard time wrapping my mind around that, but they're absolutely huge. They are indeed. I've, I've, I've experienced hunting uh, round turbines down at Southern Shore around uh, uh, for Muse, I believe it is, and uh, they they are very they are large and they are a little bit loud and everything else, and they tear up a lot of the countryside. And the in fact that you have to tear tear up the countryside to install roads to get into where you have to put them into. And uh, so, like I say, I'm not, I'm not a whole lot into it myself, but I that did uh, catch my interest about the uh, what's going to happen with the blades. And the blades, Patty, 
uh, kind of similar to all this uh, junk and everything else associated with the agriculture industry that's after being blown up on the beach and everything else. What's going to be happening with that? I don't know, but I appreciate the time. I'm a little bit late for the newscast, Barry. Stay in touch. Patty, thank you very much, and as always, it's been a pleasure. It's been mine. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, uh, thanks, Barry. It's Barry Fordham, of course. Uh, let's see here. How are we doing on the telephone, David? I'll throw out the numbers one more time. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long distance, one 590 vocm which is 8626. We're taking a break, and then we're coming back. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Claudine, you're on the air. Uh, good day. Um, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to you. Same to you, Claudine. Uh, um, I'm a little bit nervous, but uh, the story is um, my sister-in-law uh, asked me, to, did I want to go to St. John's with her on November 24th to see my niece and the four kids? So I jumped at the opportunity and she picked me up and off we went. So where she was staying with her daughter, there's no parking there, right? So I took the vehicle to my niece's, parked it on the lawn, left it there till Monday. Now Monday, when I was getting ready to come home, I discovered the window was beat out back when it was beat out. So anyway, uh, we, so lucky we had the, they had the, with, uh, the cameras on her, their house. So they caught the guy, like we got video of him getting into the vehicle, beating one out, getting into the vehicle. Uh, he stole a box of Pampers. I'm not too worried about that stuff, but he stole, but my, my uh, daughter is the godmother of one of her children. So she's sitting in a box of Pampers and a couple gift cards for the other kids. And he stole that, and he stole my winter's jacket, and he stole a set of SUV keys belonging to my sister's SUV. But now I had to take my sister's SUV and go to meet my sister-in-law, right? So that's why the keys was in her vehicle. So anyway, I called the cops. It was around 9.30. So I called the cops, and I told them, told them uh, that we had not video. Uh, and I, myself, went around to all the houses with the pictures or the video that we had. And they identified the person for me. I know exactly where he lives. The house, like, you know, the street, I think it's called uh, Frobe or something. F-R-O-U-D-E. Okay. I think that's well. Anyway, that's right. so uh, I called the cops and they said they'd be there, like you know, shortly. And so I waited and waited. So I think it was like around dinner time. I called back and she said to me, she said, uh, uh, "You're, uh, you know, on the list. They'll get there as soon as they can." So anyway, four thirty-six came and I called them again and she said, "There's sixty-five more, like I guess, people on it of me." So she said, they like, you know, uh, she's a better off. She said, you went online and filed a complaint. And I said to myself, well, why didn't you tell me that this morning when I called you? So anyway, I went online and I filed, filed a complaint. So I still, the cops never still never showed up because she told me that they would come and tape up the window good enough for us to come home. <clears throat> so anyway, cops didn't come, didn't come. So that night, I mean, we, we put a tarpaulin over it and that was it. So... 
the cops have it, like, I keep calling them and asking them, like, have they made an arrest? Because, like I said, we know the name and where he lives and, and whatnot. And the cops, they're just not doing nothing about it. I don't, I don't understand that. It's frustrating when you're the victim of a crime, property damage or what have you, and you report it to the uh, to the police or to any law enforcement, you hope that they're going to do something about it. And I can't speak to why or what they are doing or they're not doing, but I'm pretty sure that when they think and talk about prioritizing what investigations are most important for public safety, because I'm, pr- I'm pretty sure they're understaffed. And that's going to be a larger conversation when we talk about the fact that the RNC has expanded their geographical footprint, uh, you know, taking up some of the slack where the RCMP used to have a presence. So I totally get it. You know, my neighbor or someone who lives very close by me, they had their shed broken into. And a couple of pretty important items uh, stolen, a couple of uh, pretty expensive bikes and a generator and a couple of other yeah. doodads, and nothing's happened on that file either. So I get the frustration, but I'm pretty sure this is about a staffing issue. Yeah, because, uh, uh, like like I said, I, I went around, but this is ever since November 27th, right? But like, I went around to all the houses, and they said, yeah, they had this stolen, they had that stolen. Yeah. This other per- next to her said they uh, they stole the car. They haven't seen the car yet. They hot-watered the car. They haven't seen the car yet. And, I mean, I'm on this group, what, they got there's something that's stolen in, on the Avalon or something like that. And, I mean, they got video of them going around, looking in people's windows and, and breaking in the vehicles. And, like, and there's better pictures than what I got of the fellow that did it to me. So I don't understand why, like I said, they haven't made it arrests, right? Yeah, whether or not they could identify or that person is known to police and what's being done. Like, I don't know exactly what the cops are doing about it. But once again, it's... Because, I mean, you know... It's rampant. I can tell you right now, in and around this city and the northeastern Avalon, that type of crime is never-ending. No, I know. And and the thing about it is they stole my sister's SUV keys, right? Yeah. I got paid $350 now for getting a new set done up. And whatever the deductible is on my sister-in-law's SUV, and it was a brand new SUV, I mean, we feel guilty about that happening because she was in my care, but I mean, we got to pay for that. I don't care about the friggin' coat or the pampers or the gift cards, but I mean, I got to dish out now. I mean, if it's 500 for the thing, uh, for the deductible, and then it's... 350 for the keys. I mean, I got to dish out all this money now for, for, you know, nothing. I hear and feel your pain, Claudine. I, you know, we're never going to be able to get an update on very specific investigations uh, ongoing by the RNC, but hopefully if if they can identify who's been recorded on tape, they can take them to task. Now, <clears throat> highly unlikely you're ever going to get any of the stolen items back, obviously. No, uh, uh, yeah, and, and like with, with my sister, my sister lives in Alberta, right? Okay. So when she comes home now and she takes her vehicle and goes into St. John's, what's not saying that they still have the keys there and they'll come back and I mean their vehicle's gone. Yep. Right? You know? I understand. So I don't know, like, and and like, uh, I, I just I just don't understand it. I don't understand why he's not doing nothing about it. You know. Point taken, Claudine. I hope that something uh, gets rectified here. I know it won't uh, save you any money, but if there's an arrest made and charges laid and through the court well, system, if I could get my sister's <coughs> SUV keys back, I'd be okay. But you know, Got if it. I could get those keys back, I, I wouldn't care about the, you know, the window because that's replaceable too. You know, but. It's the keys that I'm I'm so concerned about because I mean they they take your SUV and go to St. John's. I mean they's not going to be able to uh, park it nowhere there. 
I wouldn't anyway. I would feel comfortable in parking it there at my niece's. I understand. If someone's got keys to your vehicle, it's very unsettling because obviously that increased the likelihood of that car being stolen. I completely get where you're coming from. And I appreciate your time this morning, Claudine. Let me know if anything changes. All right. Thank you, too. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. 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 Uh, very quickly, in reference to one of Barry Fordham's final comments, and that was on the wind turbine issue. So one of the listeners, Craig, sent along a link to a news story in a publication called Chemical and Engineering News. This is an American outfit, but I'm just going to read a little bit of it out because it is interesting. Uh, the brief summary on one on the left-hand, pardon me, the right-hand margin says, wind turbines generate roughly 6% of the world's electricity in 2020. In- Industry and analysts predict that the number will grow by more than 6% annually this decade. As the wind industry goes grows, so does the number of aging and damaged turbine blades that are being decommissioned and replaced with larger, more efficient ones. In the U.S. alone, some 8,000 blades were pulled down in 2021. Most blades were landfilled because there wasn't much else that could be done with them. But several companies are working on ways to recycle the enormous blades by shredding them and reusing the fiberglass and plastic resin to make cement, tough industrial plastics, and other products. Further advances in recycling technology, along with change in blade materials and recycling economics, may be needed to deal with the used blades on a global scale sustainability. It goes on to say, and this is pretty interesting stuff, and it does point out some of the maybe hypocrisy in the so-called world of greener and sustainable energy. When wind turbine blades reach the end of their 20 to 25 year service lives, they usually end up in landfills. But in the past several years, energy companies have sought ways to avoid bearing retired blades. Wind turbines are the symbol of sustainability and green energy because they generate electricity without emitting pollutants and greenhouse gases, says Claire Barlow, a materials engineer at the University of Cambridge. Landfilling the blades is ironic, an unsustainable way to retire them. She says is inconsistent with the sustainability goals of wind power. That recent uh, article sent to me by Craig, which I appreciate. Let's take a break. When we come back, Pat's in the queue to talk about the Labrador Island Link. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Pat. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Pat. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. Thank you. Uh, my wish for 2024 is that our provincial government will stop holding our province back uh, and pursue uh, the tunnel under the Strait of Belle Isle and the highway project connecting excuse me the tunnel to um, Bay Como Quebec um, and also uh, the northern peninsula from Deer Lake right excuse me any concern with the updated numbers that are now in hand so you're talking about, you know, one thing, part of it yeah. is a provincial responsibility if this is ever going to see any traction, but some of it is also reliant on the province of Quebec. You know, Highway yeah. 138 is the furthest thing from complete, and they anticipate yeah. that that project is going to cost about $3 billion, and that's an, an estimate yeah. coming from Arup. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, um, the uh, our province is holding us back because we are not pursuing it. Uh, Quebec wants to pursue 138. They want to connect um the uh, federal government the trudeau government has indicated that they want to back this project uh the federal infrastructure bank has has said that they want to finance this project and it can be built with uh, infrastructure money that's in the federal infrastructure bank uh, that's put up like private money from pension funds, etc., that are waiting to um, 
uh, invest the money in, in secure projects that they know will give a good return, similar to uh, the Confederation Bridge that was built to PEI. Same system. So uh, we want to, uh, it would include the highway on the Northern Peninsula, the tunnel, and also the highway uh, to Bay Como. So it would be a Trans-Canada Highway uh, standard, a good highway. Uh, that that goods and um, and people uh, can move along um, uh, with no with no uh, problems, and you know similar to the Trans Canada Highway that was built to move goods and people across this country, uh, that's what we need, and we have had the opportunity here in this province for the uh, the last number of years, certainly since uh, the Trudeau government was elected and they want to do this, uh, but our government, our provincial government, will not pursue it. Um, so uh, what is it? Is it interest groups within the government that are, uh, that, that are uh, urging them not to do this? Because this would be uh, one, of the, one, one of the biggest uh, boom, boons to, uh, to this province. Uh, that we have ever seen, you know, similar to to uh, the offshore oil, similar to that. Like Tom Kearns, the uh, engineer, Churchill Falls, he promoted this project back in the 1990s, and he said that it would be uh, the biggest thing for this province since Confederation. Uh, so this is another major, major uh, transportation uh, network. Uh, in addition to the ferry at Port of Basque, in addition to all of the airlines that we have coming in, this is another option. Okay, if um, uh, and and it's a it's a cost saving and time saving. Every resident of this province will benefit with the fact that goods can be delivered uh, from Montreal. Uh, at a, uh, like if a truck is doing one round trip to St. John's, they will now be able to do two in a week. You know. Okay. Uh, so now the province mm-hmm. did invest with the Canada Infrastructure Bank to the tune of some five hundred thousand dollars to bring in Arab to look at the work that Hatch Engineering did back in twenty eighteen, and the numbers are pretty startling. So three billion dollars to complete Highway one thirty eight, uh, four point eight yeah. billion dollars to build the link, which would take fourteen years as opposed to the twelve that yeah. uh, Hatch had suggested. Yeah. That those doesn't numbers, ag- those numbers those numbers, Patty, were done to prove a, po- a point. Okay, they, they were done as as a lot of these studies are to to back and and uh, a particular uh, viewpoint and that viewpoint uh, has has been supported by by uh, in, uh, interest groups in this province that don't want that link but who, who so are the interest this, groups this, that wouldn't want I, it? I, I don't know I don't know who they are it could be uh, it could be the shipping industry because that's going to be effective because goods and services are going to be able to move uh, easier to this province. So they may not have to go on, on a ship. Uh, they may not have to wait at, at, at Port of Basque or North Sydney uh, for hours and days for a ferry. Uh, they may not have to spend 12 to 15 hours every single time you go across that ferry. Uh, if you look at a map, uh, you take Deer Lake, to Quebec City, uh, whether you go up the northern peninsula and along the north shore of Quebec, or you go across the Gulf and to Quebec City, the distance is almost similar from Deer Lake. There's very, very little difference in the distance. 
when you have the tunnel and and it's a highway tunnel not not this thing that that they were talking about with hatch which was foolishness um with the rail. A highway tunnel a high yes yes a highway tunnel that's similar to uh, the Solback tunnel which was just completed in 2019 in across to Fanger Bay uh, two sections of tunnel. Uh, one was 14 kilometers. Then there's a small island, a small island, and there's another six or seven kilometer tunnel. Uh, the 14 kilometer tunnel. Uh, you could take the plans from that and say this is what we want on our RFP. It's uh, two tubes. They're 18 foot diameter tubes. Traffic flowing in opposite direction in each tube. Uh, that tunnel was built and completed on time and on budget uh, for 15 million uh, Canadian dollars per kilometer. So if you do the math, um, there's um, there's two tubes there, so it's 15.6 kilometers across the straits, um, a few kilometers extra for the on the ends. Um, so maybe uh, about an 18-kilometer tunnel, possibly. Uh, two tubes, that's 36 times 15 in 2019. That could be up to 20. So 36 times 20, um, what's that, whatever that comes to, right? Yeah. It's been, the numbers been, have changed uh, drastically. Hmm. Like, even yeah. if you lo- lean on the Hatch Report, and they suggest that the least cost option was indeed the rail, the 18-kilometer rail tunnel. I yeah, don't know why yeah, you consider... That, that is crazy. Why Why are they saying that? I told you, they're saying that to support, number, give numbers to, to, to uh, interest groups that don't want the government to do that. But this. hold on, Pat. Hatch's, uh, report, uh, Hatch's yeah. report is very supportive of the link. I mean, they talked about the fact that it would be revenue positive based on traffic volume. So Hatch didn't come across as anything that said, don't do this. Let's look at the actual uh, tunnel that was built at Solbach in Stavanger, Norway. Let's look at that. That was done because it was done in 2019, completed and opened in 2019, you know, just a few years ago. Yes, there has been some inflation, but that was done for 15 million Canadian per kilometer. It was done and completed. That's actual fact. Uh, so uh, why are they saying that rail? We don't want rail. No one wants rail. Why, why would you have to uh, go to the tunnel, line up to get on a rail car? No, no. Uh, we want the highway tunnel. That's what we want. It was done in Solbach. Uh, why can't it be done here? You know, um, There's no reason why it can't be done, and it should be done. And it's uh, it, it will connect Labrador to this province. Why why is our provincial government holding back Labrador? It, it will it will uh, connect uh, Labrador directly to um, to major centers in North America: Boston, New York, Montreal, Toronto, Quebec City. Uh, you know um, why? Uh, why are we? Why are we being held back? The Trans Canada Highway was built across this country to allow goods and services to move, and that's what we need here. Um, you know, and uh, we want to do it. The federal government wants to do it. The infrastructure bank wants to support it. It, it will. It will. It will pay for itself. Uh, now, uh, how does that work? It, well, because there's three ferry there's three ferry systems that that will be eliminated. The no, they won't. The ferries aren't going away. 
Well, yes, they are. No well, matter what. No, there's two. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Not three. There's two that will be eliminated. The one across the Strait of Belle Isle will be eliminated. Uh, whatever the, our provincial government is paying into that, it could be up to $10 million, close to $10 million a year to do that ferry. Uh, Quebec is doing a ferry along the North Shore up to Blanc Uh That will be eliminated. Um, so those two ferry, ferries will be eliminated, and that money can be directed on an annual basis into into the payment uh, uh, to the infrastructure bank to to pay this uh, to pay for this project. Um, so, uh, it, like the. Uh, the Confederation Bridge uh, was built and, and is being paid for the same way, exactly the same way. Uh, the Confederation Bridge is is different, yeah. though, of course, because you're talking about the uh, beginning point on the mainland of the Confederation Bridge in proximity to 4 million people versus what would be the rea- reality of the fixed link between Labrador and the island. But even like, uh, you know, you talk yeah, about time. Hold on, Pat. Uh, just, Hold just on, on Pat. That, Pat. No, but just on that point, uh, <laughs> okay. the, the, the highway is going to connect us to hundreds of millions of people, not just not just 4 million, it's hundreds proximity. of millions. proximity. It's how many people oh, are within yeah. reach, you know, yeah. in legitimate reach. Reach of the tunnel, but, not uh, that. Okay, yeah. go well, ahead. Those people in those in those people in those centers will want a lot of those people uh, will want to come to Newfoundland and Labrador for whatever reason. Okay, that's one thing. And now uh, the other thing is the uh, the goods uh, and services that the residents of these of this island uh, would enjoy and Labrador um, at a at a more competitive rate than they're getting right now. Okay, and and they will come in faster. At a more competitive rate, and also, also, um, for instance, the the uh, the shoe f- shoe factory in Harbor Grace was shut down because they could not meet their deadlines, uh, just in time deadlines, because of the ferry, the interruptions. Um, uh, that was the reason that plant was shut down. Eighty people went out of a job. Um, so it would encourage more um, more manufacturing. It would encourage even more people to come here and work in, say, the tech industry, knowing that they can jump in the car and uh, there's no holdup, and they can be in Montreal in uh, in. 20, 20 hours or whatever. It could be right? beneficial if there's interruptions with the ferry service, but the reality is that if you're coming from, uh, say, Quebec City, which I think you mentioned already, you save yes. about two hours in the round trip by avoiding the ferry. If you're coming from Winnipeg or anywhere in that part of the country, you save about an hour. If you're coming from uh, anywhere else, like Halifax or Boston, it's actually longer to get to the island uh, via the link versus the ferry. So there's lots to this. What we need to do, like if this is ever going to move forward, even one iota, is the province has got to go to the market to see who builds these tunnels, come back with a plan, what the eventual tariff would be, because it's not just going to be about $4.8 billion to build it, $3 billion to complete Highway 138, however yeah. many untold yeah. millions to upgrade the highway system on the Northern Peninsula, and then yeah. what it's going to cost yeah. to actually get in the tunnel. Yeah, but why Why are you giving the, uh, all of these numbers that are on a completely negative side? Uh, you're saying one to two hours. Uh, the the uh, ferry across the Gulf it takes you 12 hours at the best of times, and and you could be there waiting for half a day or more. Uh, Those numbers you know, are not so, offered uh, to be negative. Those numbers are offered with kilometers traveled at yeah, an average rate yes, of speed. Yes. Well, well, they are Pat uh, because uh, the the highway distance is virtually the same. 
Uh, now, if you're coming from Boston, yes, you can come along uh, the, the, um, through New Brunswick, the bottom of New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. It might be a little shorter there than actually Quebec City. But if you, uh, like, everything comes through Quebec City from Montreal, Toronto. Uh, from Quebec City, if you go around the Gulf, um, the uh, kilometers may be like one to 200 kilometer difference. That, that's about it. You know, uh, the highway distance is is the same to Deer Lake, uh, either route that that you take. Uh, so, um, the, uh, and and also you quoted 4.5 billion, uh, 4.8 billion. That doesn't add up. You know, I mean that you're talking about a rail tunnel. I don't know why they did that. Uh, you're probably talking about getting a, a tunnel making machine in to do it. You know, completely unnecessary. Solback was built uh, blast uh, technique, the same as mines are done. Um, Blast and clear out the rubble, and then you go and blast in a little deeper and clear out the rubble. You know, it was built, there was a crew of about eight people working on a shift uh, building that tunnel. Um, And that's how they progressed it across. And it was done on time and on, on budget. Pat, I appreciate the conversation and the time. Yeah. Yes, I I just wish that our government will will not hold us back. You know, uh, let's uh, we we have to we have to have every advantage, and why not take advantage of it? You know, uh, don't don't give in to some interest groups. And as far as as Port of Ask, uh, that could be busier than it is now, even with the tunnel. Even though they said sixty percent of the traffic would probably use the tunnel. Uh, there's going to be a lot of people doing round trips. I mean, it could work out that uh, that service may be even busier. We don't know. But if it's not busier, it's still going to need uh, – we're, we're going to need that service there. So there will be still still be jobs in Port of Basque. Oh, Marine Atlantic's not going away no matter what they build. That's sure. one thing we know for sure. Uh, Pat, and appreciate this. Thanks for the call. Okay, thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, there you go. Uh, Good one. Let's see. Off the top of the show, we talked about the use of artificial intelligence and the lore that it presents and the risks it presents. Uh, Mackenzie Broaders is the director of advocacy at the uh, Memorial University Student Union. Up right after this. Don't go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the show. Mackenzie Broaders is the Executive Director of Advocacy with Munsu and joins us on Line 3. Mackenzie, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? I'm excellent. How about you? It's a great day. It's first day back to classes. I'm doing good. Yeah, good for you. Glad to hear it. Hopefully you have a successful semester. Uh, before we get into the nitty-gritty here about plagiarism and artificial intelligence, have you played around with ChatGPT or Grammarly? I certainly have. I mean, I think I think it's something that everyone is using now. It's kind of hard to get away from, honestly. I think a lot of people are talking about it. Um, I'm very curious. I mean, I use it uh, as a tool. I think it's a really great resource for people to use. Um, and I think a lot of the problem that we're running into is not just people using it, but people using it in a way that ends up um, coming out as plagiarism, looking like plagiarism, um, not using it correctly. I think it's a great tool. I use it all the time, um, but it's it's very up in the air right now. <laughs> so how do you use it and not have it equal plagiarism? Because if I'm simply inputting text and it spits out my report, I really didn't do any research. I didn't really learn anything. I didn't challenge myself. And I'm basically just using someone else's work, in this case, an artificial intelligence platform. So how do you use it and not plagiarize? 
That's a great point. You just, you just got it right on the head, Patty. <laughs> uh, so basically, uh, there's, there's, like you said, if someone is using it, if you're getting it to write your paper or even just a paragraph or a sentence or a couple of sentences, any amount of writing or ideas, thoughts that are not your own, that are going into your writing, that are being generated by these AIs, that is what we're calling plagiarism. AI is a really great tool for things like checking your spelling, checking your grammar. Um, you know, it can tell you if you have any run-on sentences, if your if your paragraphs are well structured. It's really great for all of those things. It's also a good sort of preliminary research tool, in much the same way that often you hear people say, you know, don't use Wikipedia for research. I would probably say much the same thing about AI, uh, but you can type in your query and say, you know, tell me about this, and then as long as you go and take that and look it up somewhere else. AI is a great tool. What people are doing is they're thinking that AI is going to give them a completely true answer. They're just putting their questions into AI and then taking the answers that AI gives them. And often those are those are fabricated, they're made up, they're guesses that the AI is making, um, and that's really obvious to professors. Yeah, there's been uh, you know examinations done, for instance, by a couple of journalists that I remember last year when they're first tooling around with this issue, and they said they put in some uh, issues that they would have covered as a journalist, stories that they may have written, but they did not, and all of a sudden AI spit it out and associated those uh, stories directly with that journalist. So it's completely unreliable at this point. Well, maybe that's an overreach. It is not reliable to the point where people should lean on it, very much like your valid point about not leaning on Wikipedia. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And I think it's something that, you know, I think a big part of the problem is that it's very confusing. You know, AI companies right now are marketing themselves as these really great resources, these places where you can go and access all of this information sort of at the tips of your fingers. Um, and I think people are believing that. I think they're really good marketers. <laughs> um, and, you know, people are, are believing that these are, you know, going to be credible sources of information, and they really are not. And I think we, we need to kind of get our heads around the fact that um, this is stuff that, you know, whatever is in AI has been written by a person who does exist in the world probably somewhere else, um, you know, they, they gave it the tools to sort of generate what it's generating. Um, so, yeah, it really is taking someone else's ideas as your own. So people also need to be aware of the academic risks associated with not not only about accuracy, but for being so-called plagiarizing. You know, because this is, you know, just going out to mine data to compile it into a report it might be bits from this author, bits from that author, maybe a thousand different sources in the body of 2,000 words. So what do students need to understand about the risk? Because the, there's software out there for the professors to put your work through to identify if there has been any plagiarism and or AI-generated content. So what do we need to know about the risks? Yeah, so I'll first actually uh, just talk a little bit about the sort of software that you just mentioned in terms of uh, something being able to check if something was written by AI. What we're seeing a lot is that professors are using those. They're very easy to find if you look them up, um, but they're not actually very reliable. So a lot of what they pick up um, are often more characteristic of just poor, inexperienced writing than they are necessarily characteristic of AI. Um, they could be picking up on things that are maybe obvious statements that any, like you know, the AI would generate, but also any sensible person writing the same paper would, would say. Um, so that's a bit of a concern to us is that as much as it is often quite obvious when a student has used AI, um, professors are not infallible and they are sometimes making mistakes. We have seen instances of false accusations being made against students. So that's a real concern. Um, in terms of the concerns around plagiarism, um, there's a couple of different uh, sort of levels at which a student can be kind of punished for reprimanded maybe for for, for committing plagiarism or any kind of academic misconduct. Um, but with AI, and, and you know, at this point, AI is being seen as traditional plagiarism. And tr plagiarism, of course, is when, you know, someone else's idea is presented as your own in a, in, in a, in a 
you know, body of work, usually a piece of writing. Um, we are looking at students being suspended, and that's actually a very normal um, sort of penalty at the university. It's not one that Munsu um, agrees with, I have to say. Uh, it's a very harsh penalty, especially for first-time offenses, but that is what we're seeing. And so I think students do need to be aware that if they are using AI, they need to know you know, the penalties that they could be looking at if they get caught, especially on a final exam, could be things like, you know, you're taking a zero in the, in the assignment or in the course. Um, and if it's really bad, you could be looking at even probation or suspension from the university. Yeah. So from where I sit, and I'm not a university student, so people will do as they see fit. And it's very enticing to want to use artificial intelligence, but it might not be worth the risk. And I thought there was also an interesting comment coming from uh, Josh Leposky, who's the uh, faculty president, faculty association president, saying, here's the quote. In particular classes, assignments tend to be much more fine grained, much more specific. The idea that you could just copy the text of an assignment into chat GPT and come away with a finished piece of text that you could submit is pretty unlikely. So so between that and the risk of academic uh, probation and or suspension, maybe use it as a starting point for your research work from it to compile your own written with your own thoughts report. Probably use it on in that role versus see if you can't get away with simply putting it in and taking the short route. Absolutely. I think it's like I said, I think it's a really great tool for things like, you know, checking speller, checking your grammar, your yeah. you know, conventions, all that kind of stuff. You know, is your paper well structured? It's a really great tool for that. Um, but people do really need to be careful. And I think also a really big piece of it is that the university really needs to um, think about how it wants to handle this. Um, and professors do need to, I think, adjust um, you know, how they're teaching, what they're teaching, what they're telling their students, what kinds of things that we're being asked to do as evaluations. Um, I do think it's going to have to change. You know, AI isn't going away, um, and we need to be teaching in consideration of that. So I think, you know, I think a lot of the reason that people are using AI, yes, it's very enticing, but also, as we know, it's a very hard time for students. There's, you know, it, it, it's cost of living is way up. It's really hard to find rentals. I'll say a majority of Muncie's legal aid service goes to helping students who are having trouble with, with housing. Um, so so we see a lot of that here. Food insecurity is way up. Students are having to work while studying. So I think there's a lot of sort of compounding factors why we see students ending up in these situations. Um, what I want students to know is that there are other supports. Munsu is here to support you. Um, there's, you know, uh, services the university offers like the Writing Center. Um, there's lots of things that you can do other than using AI to write your paper. So uh, please reach out if you, need, if you need any support. <laughs> Appreciate the time this morning, Mackenzie. Thanks a lot. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Mackenzie Broaders, uh, the Director of Advocacy, Monsu. Before the break, line number two. Good morning, Rudy. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? Good, sir. How about yourself? Very well. Happy New Year to you. Same to you. Uh, Patty, this may well fall under a public service announcement, but Emmaus House, our food bank up on the Basilica, we have a policy that if if uh, schools are closed due to inclement weather, that we are closed as well. So uh, for some of our some of people who are available of our services, if they uh, listen to your uh, to your program, I'm sure many do, uh, just to, to know that that if if the schools are closed tomorrow because of inclement weather, we will not be open either. Yeah, I mean it stands to reason we can't put people in harm's way. And I have no earthly idea what the weather is actually going to turn out to be tomorrow, but that's helpful information. Yeah, and uh, Paddy, I also should tell you, I'm going to be reaching out to you uh, in a few weeks to just uh, discuss with you some uh, some innovations that we're going to be launching at Emmaus House that certainly will uh, will enhance our whole operation. So I look forward to discussing those with you as well. As do I, Rudy, and hopefully we'll see you around soon. Say hello to the family for me. Well, do, Paddy, and all the best. Thank you. You too, Rudy. Bye-bye.
Uh, very quickly before we get to the break, you know, so the fellow, who, the fellow who's referred to as the godfather of AI, artificial intelligence, a guy named uh, Jeffrey Hinton. He even says that he regrets some of his life's work, which was the creation of this artificial intelligence. Talk about some of the distinct risks. Now, it can be absolutely helpful, of course. Not trying to be hyperbolic here, but, you know, talk about job loss spurred by automation. The deep fakes, which are going to be problematic. Privacy violations. Algorithmic bias caused by just simply bad data. Socioeconomic inequality. Market volatility. The automization of weapons. Uncontrollable self-aware AI. That's, you know, one of those futuristic things where you think, nah, that's just in the movies. Maybe not. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, Crown Lands. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one and say good morning to the owner and operator of the Bloomfield Farm Outport Acres. That's Adam Furlong. Good morning, Adam. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Have a good Christmas. At a perfectly quiet Christmas, which is exactly what the doctor ordered. Yeah, it seems like most people that I've asked that question to this year has had the same thing, including myself, much quieter than previous years, but maybe that's exactly what was needed. Well, for me, I just needed a break, you know. Uh, I don't, I'm pretty social. I go to parties and I do all that kind of stuff, but Christmas Eve at my place, Christmas Day up to my sister Lisa's, and that was it for me. Okay. Anyway, um, I'm sure people wanted to know my party, my party uh, structure. <laughs> yeah. What's yeah. on the mind uh, this morning, Adam? I just heard you talking about the uh, the need for uh, changes to the Crown Lands legislation there in your preamble, so I just felt like I should probably call in and continue the conversation that we've had many times before. It's. I wonder how many times we're going to have to have it before someone does something about it, because certainly the province, I think, maybe hasn't said it as uh, solidly as they should, but the system does not work the end. And if we can acknowledge that it doesn't work, the hesitancy to fix it is just a head-scratcher to me. Yeah, well, I mean, even if we look back to when Clement uh, Forsey brought the special members resolution into the House, and they all stood up and debated the the uh, legitimacy of the uh, special members' resolution. Pretty much everybody who stood up on every party agreed that there's problems with it and, and it needs to be fixed, and then they voted it down. And I was really hoping that in the fall sitting at House Assembly, somebody, something was going to happen to at least try to fix some of the issues. But it seems like nobody has any interest in doing anything to actually fix it, even when they acknowledge out loud themselves that it needs to be fixed. And I've actually had uh, three people over this past Christmas break who have had conversations with me about how they have had this issue come up recently. So, I mean, I've heard you say many times before when talking about the uh, the whole housing crisis and everything, like um, people's homes and their property is the biggest purchase, the biggest piece of equity, the biggest asset that most people will ever have. Um, and a large portion of people's net worth and a good chunk of their retirement planning revolves around their real estate that they own. So, I mean, the process that the government are currently going through with tying up all of these uh, uh, land title claims, they're essentially holding hostage the biggest asset that individuals own and taking away from their uh, available retirement funding. I mean, I've used, again, I'd like to stress the very conservative numbers 
of 10,000 properties in the province with the issue, and if they all have a similar uh, financial impact that the Diamonds just saw uh, last month down in Catalina of $10,000 to buy their own property back, and that was just to buy the property back. That's not for their legal fees or any else, anything else like that. So again, very conservative. 10,000 properties times $10,000, that's $100 million. So the government are moving forward with a plan that will take hundreds of millions of dollars out of Newfoundland and Labrador residents' bank accounts and out of our local economy. They need to fix the broken legislation. There is no way that moving forward the way that they're moving forward is the right move. I mean, everyone has acknowledged out loud that it's an issue and it needs to be fixed, but no one is actually doing a single thing to move forward with fixing it. They said they're they're in the process of a public consultation now. They just released, uh, I don't know if it was last month or November, they released their their findings and all the information that they gather, gathered over that public consultation. But, I mean, they've already done two of those in the past eight, ten years, and not a single recommended action item has been imp- implemented from either of those. So I don't really have a lot of faith that this public consultation is going to produce any meaning, meaningful results. But, I mean... If this Crown land issue is not resolved in the spring sitting of the House of Assembly, I will be baffled. I, I don't understand how it can go on this long just being ignored. That $100 million uh, that you mentioned is absolutely conservative because that's only using $10,000 for 10,000 properties. And then you add in, rightfully so, the legal fees. And then things that you can't put a dollar amount on is the frustration and anxiety and the time it's going to take to deal with it the way that the Diamonds did, which took, if I remember the dates, two or three years. So... I just don't understand the hesitancy to get in there and get down to brass tacks and figure this out. And it's not about who gets to bring forward the best idea. You know, let's just say this. Between yourself and Greg French and the Diamonds and whoever else is speaking about Crownlands, let's just use them as the political uh, go-to as to why it needs to be fixed and whose ideas count. Because if it's going to be, you know, let's reject Pleman Force's private member's resolution because we don't want the PCs to be given any credit for fixing the Crownlands issue, let's just knock that stuff off. Because the ideas are out there. The suggestions for the fix are out there. And they're not politicized. Greg French comes at it uh, uh, from the viewpoint as a lawyer, not as a politician. So we've got the suggestions. We've got the ideas. Let's act on them. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, from all the conversations that I've had with anyone in government, every single time it's been acknowledged to me out loud that they know there's a problem. So they know that it exists. They're not fixing it. And... Most of the argument that they've put forward to me about why they're not fixing it is just that, you know, our hands are tied. The legislation is the legislation. We're just enforcing the black and white document that's in front of us. So until the legislation is actually changed, there's nothing we can do about it. But what nobody seems to be willing to recognize is the fact that, and this might sound like a bit of an exaggeration to some people, but it is absolutely not. What they are failing to recognize is that their actions are actually ruining people's lives. I mean, if you look at the vast majority of people who have this issue right now are elderly people who bought their land when they were my age. They have planned for their retirement, and the vast majority of them have used the value of the real estate that they own 
as a part of their retirement plan. So you're taking that away from people in their retirement. That is a major negative impact on the rest of their lives. They're preventing young families from moving forward with starting their lives. I I know of several people who are younger than me who are trying to build a home and start a life on a piece of property only to have this come up and say, no, you can't use that property to build your home. Well, what now? This was my family's land, so they don't want to walk away from it. So they just spend years trying to get it sorted out. And I mean, somebody that I spoke to over Christmas told me they were, again, younger than me. They told me that they were trying to get a piece of land squared away so that her and her young family could build a home. And She's told me that this whole issue came up, and she said, well, you know, we're really hoping that it gets squared away early in the new year. And I didn't say anything, but, I mean, just based on my knowledge of how this goes and my own personal experience, there's no way that that's going to get squared away early in the new year. They'll be lucky if it takes three years to get squared away. And, I mean, if you look at my specific situation, I moved here trying to do something good you know, I, I, I left a 10-year career to move here and try to grow a business in agriculture. I completely changed the focus of my life and my career to do this. And I've had three growing seasons where I have been unable to move forward with my business plan as I had it because of nothing else except for this. So, I mean, I've just been trying to, like, piece things together as best I could where I could have been three years ahead of where I am right now with increasing food production locally and increasing food security in the province and and growing naturally grown organic food for the people in my community and for the people in Newfoundland. And it's all been prevented every step of the way. There's been roadblocks thrown up in my way by no one else except for our government and the Crown Lands Division. It's it's ridiculous. Uh, it, it's got to get attended to, and that's why I've been, you know, this week kind of talking about not looking back necessarily, but things that are on the front burner for 2024 that just need to be addressed, need to be attended to, uh, legislation amended, whatever it's going to take, and there's lots of those on that list. Uh, Adam, as usual, I appreciate the time. Thanks for the call. Thank you, Patty. Take good care. Bye-bye. Yeah, that issue just drives me. Uh, I I enjoy talking about it, but the fact that it isn't fixed is not great. Uh, Art, you're next. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Art. You're on the air. Happy New Year to you, buddy. The same to you, sir. Listen, when I was growing up, there was no such thing as crown land. You fence whatever you could, and you'd own it. Yeah, basically what they call the squatter's rights. Squatter's rights, that's right, sir. And my my father had belonged to his uncle, and he had land and land by acres. And my uncle had land and land by acres. Do they own that now or what? No, is the short answer. No, because I can't because. say that because there's there's ways through affidavits to prove that the property had been occupied for I think it was 20 years prior to 1976, but for a lot of people that's easier said than done. And you know, so the issue with you know my great great grandfather owned the land, passed it off to my grandfather, and yeah. pa- my great grandfather, then my grandfather, then me, and then lo and behold, I go to sell the house that I built on it, and I don't own the land. Well, it's 
crazy. That's like Mrs. down there that owns the land, wherever she's from, going back and forth with Buddy with the driveway. Go to the judge and get the judge to sign that affidavit uh, that she got. Mom done it. Mom went in here in this city, and there wasn't very many cars around. And she come in this city, and she got the judge to sign it. And Jack Stewart come to the gate. She said, don't come no further. I'll have you for trespassing. Yeah. It's a convoluted system that we've got going, that's for sure. And I went down to the land and the deeds to get a piece of land in Mobile. I paid money, $40 for the piece of land in Mobile. Somebody else now is living on the land. I never heard tell the $40. I never heard tell the buddy. Yeah, I'm not sure what we're going to be able to say or do about it, but the government is going to have to acknowledge the fact that it simply doesn't work because those types of policies should be working in the best interest of the people, not necessarily the best interest of the government coffers because that's not what the intention is to manage Crown lands. Now, in addition to, you know, the time and the cost to acquire a title, it's also people trying to purchase a piece of Crown land off the government, which has been a very frustrating exercise. Just going through more blue paint than all. Yep. You know, it'll take me 10 years if I want to build a house somewhere in this city. It'll take me about 10 years to get a permit out of the government to build a house there. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, you know, that becomes a bigger point when we're talking about all the homes that need to be built right across the country. It just exactly. takes too long. The level of bureaucracy and time and frustration to deal with municipalities on this front has just got to be fixed. We can get all the money we want from Ottawa. There's $4 yep. billion dollars sitting there for uh, municipalities to apply for. But if you get the money, it doesn't mean you're going to be able to build the homes in a timely fashion. So we've just got to change our tune on the level of bureaucracy and red tape. It was ten of us raised in the one family, two-story house. Ten of us. And we had clapboard and board on the house. And the rest was wallpaper. And it was the warmest kind. And Daddy wouldn't leave us park in the stove in the nighttime when he go to bed. Make sure the power was out. We went, we went through lots of cold winters, too. But we had lots of quilts in the bed. It was a different time, wasn't it? Well, big times, too. And they were good. Things have to be changing an awful lot. Art, I appreciate the time this morning. Anything else you want to talk about while we have you? No, that's it now. Thank you very much. I appreciate the call. Thanks, Art. Thank you. All right, bye-bye. And, you know, some of the references that you hear about folks are lazy, and there is a productivity problem in Canada, and that's been well understood for quite a long time. But the concept that, you know, everyone's got their hand out and they need this or that from the government, you know, how about back in the old days when things were much different and people were more self-sustainable and hardworking and what have you? But not only have times changed, but things have changed. You know, long gone is the day. Now, unless you've got a vascular surgeon or someone as one of the partners in the home, is, you know, how long has it been since you could have, say, for instance, dad working, mom at home, raise the kids, have a car, have a house, put them through university, all on that one income? It's absolutely impossible now, like I said, unless you've got someone working and earning, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. So that's the difference. Because even just to try to get into a starter home is really 
punitive for so many people. The average or median salary here in this province, right across the country, simply doesn't allow for it. You know, you can scrimp and save forever and a day to try to come up with a down payment. Then you've got to pass what is a very onerous mortgage stress test, and then everything under the sun. The average price of a, a vehicle in this province uh, today is around $66,000. Right, average price of giving in, getting into a starter home, you're still in the neighborhood of what, two ninety nine, three fifty five. That's a pretty big undertaking because people need a vehicle, people need a home. Then you look at everything else under the sun and the costs associated with it, for your cell phone and your electricity and your insurance premiums and all the just bare bones, the fundamentals and the necessities. That's why it's a different landscape, and that's why, you know people's reliance on or demands on government have changed drastically and dramatically because it is not what it once was. Dad working, mom at home, two kids, car in the driveway, a roof over their head, through university, I mean, just not available these this day and age. Anyway, we're hearing from a gentleman, I'll leave his name out of it, about the issues inside of Crown Lands and in particular Section 36. So almost everyone you talk to in real estate will have encountered some particular issue with Crown Lands. Just about, well, if you're interested, there's a land use atlas on the government's website. It really clearly indicates that there's a huge swath of the province that is absolutely Crown Land, and much of that swath will be occupied by a family or a business, and they've built their home or they've built their their, uh, facility to do whatever they're doing in business. And then, when lo and behold, they want to sell to a new owner, they want to move on, they'll find out the hard way. Because we only ever mention, you know, certain families that have got a lot of attention in the media, whether it be the Catalina Diamonds and or Adam Furlong out in Bloomfield, but that's just scratch on the surface. It really, truly is. And when Adam uses numbers to try to back up the point, I think it's helpful. Because when the Diamonds settled with the government and paid their legal bills, and the couple of years it took, all the while Mrs. Diamond was ill, 10000 bucks. If only 10000 other issues regarding Crown Lands and to try to settle with the government at the same number of $10,000, that's $100 million unnecessarily flowing to the government. Not to say that government should just revert immediately all the way back to squatters' rights and everything's hunky-dory and they never uh, sell another piece of Crown Land. No. It's just that the way it works and the the deed division separated from Crown Lands and you got the left hand and the right hand and the confusion and the lawyer fees and all the rest of it, it just makes it unmanageable. All right, someone wants me to talk about equalization again and try to make the point regarding how Quebec unfairly takes a huge portion of the pie. Inside of equalization this year, the 24-25 fiscal year, $21 billion, $13.1 billion of it flows to the province of Quebec. Try to draw that link between how they achieve that number whether or not it's fair, which of course it's not, and anything else under the sun, we could talk about it. All you have to do to bring up a topic of your choosing, elaborate on what you've heard this morning, is to pick up the phone and give us a shout and get on the air. If you're in the St. John's Metro region, it's 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break, and then we're coming back. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one, say good morning to the Director of Fund Development at the Canadian Heart of Hearing Association of Newfoundland and Labrador. That's Terry Martin. Good morning, Terry. You're on the air. Yeah, hi, Patty. How are you this morning? And thanks for taking the time to talk to us one more time. Happy to take Uh, your call. I'm doing well. How about you? Very well, thank you. Happy New Year to you and yours. Same to you, Terry. Thank you, sir. Uh, no, uh, tonight is, I just wanted to mention that tonight is the deadline for the Ultimate Dream Home Lottery. 
And uh, midnight tonight, you have to get your tickets by. And um, I just wanted just uh, to remind your listeners of that because it's uh, it's one of the happiest times of the year for us. Uh, project is winding down, and and uh, and it gives us the resources to do what we need to do to help so many people here in the province. So just tell about the prizes and stuff, and then I want to get into another couple of issues that you folks deal with. Yeah, no problem. Uh, okay, well, right now the fifty-fifty is over eight hundred and thirty-seven thousand, and of course the the home itself is located on 196 Cheeseman Drive in Southlands, and that they're, you know, all in is valued at 774000 So these are fantastic prizes, uh, you know, um, and, you know, either one of those prizes can go a long way to, to help anyone who may win. And, of course, the resources uh, raised, of course, still helps people. So it's win, win, win all the way around. Yeah, and, I mean, so take your opportunity to get a ticket. Talk about where to get it, and then let us have a conversation. Okay, yeah. Uh, the... Uh, the best place to buy them is ultimatedreamhomelottery.com. That's our website, and that there's the fastest and easiest way to do it. And then, of course, uh, uh, you know, we do have the Dream Line, and it's one eight four four two four zero two nine four six. But, again, the fastest and easiest way is just to go directly online and, of course, you know, choose to have it come electronically, and it'll be mailed out to you, you know, within five business days, you know, to your email. And fast and efficient and, uh, and you know, of course, very environmentally friendly because we're not using any extra paper. Fair enough. And not to generalize or to stereotype, but I think most people consider their hearing getting away from them or, you know, lessening or decreasing over time is because of age, which kind of stands to reason, right? But I wonder how many more people you're seeing that are more younger than usual, because almost everyone you walk by, who young adults or teenagers or people in their 40s and 50s, they've got the earbuds in. I don't know how loud they're listening to whatever podcast or music that they, that they have on, but that's got to be contributing to hearing loss. It certainly has been, and you know, it's a great issue that you raise, and indeed it affects all ages, but with the young people, uh, we're seeing more and more hearing loss because, and the, and the, you know, the earbud is a big thing because that there's is a direct source of energy that's, that's being generated and pumped so close to your eardrum, and then, of course, that's going to your inner ear, and it's causing damage, and and, you know, I mean, there are some studies, and I, and I can't quote either one right now, but, I mean, we have seen some estimates of about 20% of people entering post-secondary institutions for education purposes have some form of hearing loss. And that's huge, and that's only going to increase and, of course, become more prominent as they get older. And uh, you mentioned earlier about, you know, uh, the older we get, of course, the bigger the hearing loss, you know, has and and, and, and and we'll continue to do so. But the big thing is, is that it's happening at a younger and younger age. And, uh, and that's going to cause a lot of problems. And, and isolation from hearing loss uh, causes a big problem. You know, of course, mental illness and, and is, is attached to isolation. And, you know, workplace, your relationships, everything is, is included with that. And it's worth adding to it that hearing loss cannot be reversed. No, it cannot. And, and you know, 90% of most hearing loss is preventable. And that, that is, is the most scariest thought of all because there are things that we can do, uh, you know, to, to protect our hearing. And, uh, you know, once it occurs, it occurs. And, you know, as an example, we've all had the ringing in our ears, say, from coming from a loud concert or something like that. And not to get too technical, but, you know, uh, the inner ear is covered with uh, cilia. It's like a little hair-like structure. And those will flutter and, and move from the vibrations of sounds. If you put in too much sound too loud, those are like a blade of grass, and they get pushed down, and eventually they come back. But what happens is that if they all come back at the one time, the brain is getting confused, and of course that's the ringing. But the problem is, little pieces of those break off and get damaged along the way, and they all don't come back up, and eventually 
you know, you're going to lose your hearing. And, you know, the earbuds, you know, uh, contribute to that, loud noise, industrial noise, you know, snow blowers this time of year, lawnmowers, uh, leaf blowers. You know, there's a lot of things that we can do. And most people don't wear hearing protection. I know I always do. I always got to wear, you know, the, the earmuffs uh, all the time. So just, you know, the earbud is a relatively new thing. There's long been headphones, right, for decades. But with the earbud, it's a much more compressed uh, opportunity to see some damage to your eardrum. So just give us an idea. Ten years ago, how many people were available of your services compared to now? Well, I would say uh, right now we're looking at about 28% of the general population now has some form of hearing loss. Of course, as you get older, that gets up into 50 and 60%. You get over 55 years of age, we're looking at minimum 50% with a hearing loss. And it goes up and it doubles about every five years in age from there. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, uh, say I've been with the association now for 27 years. And we're still dealing with the same numbers. And, uh, of course, the biggest number we're dealing with now is the fact that it's happening in younger ages, and that is a big problem. Uh, you mentioned about, you know, the headphones that you and I used to have when we were kids growing up. Um, over the air is probably still the safest way because, again, the earbuds themselves, they put direct energy into your ears, and, and you know, that's preventable. And so the numbers are increasing, and the age is dropping. And as comparison, uh, I couldn't give you the exact numbers, but I would say it's somewhere – uh, you know, hearing loss would start showing up, say, in around the 30s and 40s. Uh, now, it's, you know, it's happening in the 20s. So that's a big drop. So I don't know what uh, degree of hearing loss would be considered a disability. And this is a bit of an out there question, but how common is single-sided deafness? Well, uh, you know, um, the biggest thing about hearing loss itself, so as an example, the single biggest claim that, you know, uh, Workplace Newfoundland has right now, it's not, you know, the soft tissue injuries and all that anymore. Now, right now, the biggest injury is biggest injury claim now is hearing loss, and uh, you know once you become deafened, you know there are some opportunities for people to get a cochlear implant if they've acquired spoken language that get that helps them a lot easier. But you know, uh, as you know, uh, you know I have a daughter who's deaf, and uh, you know, um, you know we deal with hearing loss on a daily basis, and of course we use sign language. Uh, it's single-sided deafness is on the rise it's a problem and you know we need to intercede and you know you helping us get the message out and and you know goes a long way to help because like i said 90 percent of hearing loss is preventable you just mentioned american sign language and of course it is a language it's the only language that the deaf person has available and it's curiously let's see if i can find that uh, right now very quickly it was on this day in 1809 louis braille the inventor of reading and writing system for the blind was born in france so we're talking about you know uh, supports for people with disabilities when we talk about sign language and the availability of interpreters we have a huge problem here apparently there's only like five or six interpreters available even when we try to organize conversations with say for instance the association for the deaf and we talk about the Carter Churchill case in school and the lack of formally trained American Sign Language teachers. What kind of advocacy work do you folks do? Because that impacts a big number of the population, and yet we're falling way behind. Well, you know, one of the things that we do is is that we have scholarships available for people who get into the you know the auditory verbal training audiologist field themselves. You know, and maybe at some point some of them will move into the interpreting field. Uh, you know, it is. We're, like we're there to help anyone wherever we can, and you know, quite some years ago, uh, I was involved with our association, and I set up the sign language interpreting program for the government here in Newfoundland with about two hours' notice. 
and we ran that den for about seven years. So, I mean, I, I have a great knowledge on that one, and you're right, like, there is a big shortage, but there's a shortage around, you know, around North America uh, when it comes to, you know, people who have the right qualifications to become interpreters. So that is a skill all on its own. It's It's very difficult because if it helps to understand it, like, basically, sign language and English, they're not the same language. So you read one is contextual, and it takes a lot to be able to interpret it into into you know spoken language, uh, and that there you know becomes a problem. Uh, there is a shortage, no question. And again, like I said, we have uh, scholarships where we help people you know get into the into the area when it comes to ideology, and you know, and we'll continue to. I would suspect that we'll explore other areas that we can do to to get there. I appreciate the time, Terry. Give the folks the contact info one more time for the Dream Home. Okay, it's the ultimate dream home lottery.com. And uh, of course, you got 1 And I suspect that looks like our 50 50 is going to go over a million dollars again. So half of that is great. And of course, the dream home itself is a beautiful, fantastic prize. And it's ready for you to move right in. Appreciate the time. Good luck with it, Terry. Stay in touch. All right. Thank you very much, Patty. And all the best to you and yours. The same to you, Terry. Thank you. There we go. It's Terry Martin, Director of Fund Development at the Canadian Heart of Hearing Association, NL. Let's go to line number two. Betty, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Betty. Good morning. I'd like to wish you and Dave a very happy and safe and healthy new year for you and your family and all the good work you do for VLCM and keep safe. And I'd like to send out to tell my husband a happy and safe and healthy New Year. And we wish you the very same kind sentiments. Betty, did you do anything for New Year's or anything exciting over the holidays? No, I'm still recovering from the accident I had in Body Health Science. I fell. And, like, I never broke my arm, but it was badly bruised. And I'm still not, I'm still recovering, right? So how's recovery going? You doing okay? Uh, yes. Yeah, it's it's going to take a while, but I'll get there. Well, fingers crossed it happens sooner than later. And we always really appreciate the kindness of these types of calls. Well, all you wanted to do was spread around some uh, good luck and health and happiness in the new year. We wish you the very same and a speedy recovery. Thank you, Patty. You're welcome, Betty. Keep up the good work. Thanks. Take care. You and Dave. Okay. 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 Bye. Bye-bye. All right, there you go. Sweet. And hopefully, yes, she recovers in full ASAP. So, yeah, I don't know when the deadline is for saying Happy New Year's. I got an email overnight that says, you know, probably we should stop doing that now. It gets a bit redundant. Here we are on the 4th of January. Nah. You want to wish anyone Happy New Year on this program today? You can do exactly that right after this. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Well, a bunch of emailers are asking why we don't have more conversation about things like artificial intelligence. Well, a few reasons, I suppose. Number one, you know, it'd be great if a caller would like to bring it up. I'm happy to talk about it. Number two, I don't really know very much about it, to be honest with you. The deep learning models and artificial intelligence is pretty difficult to understand. Apparently, even for folks who are actually working on the platforms, they also acknowledge that it is quite complex and difficult to understand. So they talk about some of the associated problems and the risks with AI. 
that lack of transparency because if people who are actually working on the platforms don't necessar necessarily understand it as much as they absolutely should and the potential for bias algorithms to be part of our day-to-day -day conversation so that then the big one that people leaned on initially was job losses so automation has been a big part of manufacturing changes over the last couple or three decades it's meant the loss of some jobs it hasn't really impacted price point but it has absolutely impacted profitability for the companies that have automated whether it be on the assembly line for furniture or automobiles or what have you, but when looking at specifically artificial intelligence. Now, some of these numbers and stories are coming from work done by Goldman Sachs, McKinsey & Co., and basically largely talk about American numbers. So they say that by 2030, tasks that account for up to 30% of hours currently being worked in the U.S. economy could be automated. Goldman Sachs even states that maybe some 300 million full-time jobs could be lost due to AI automation. Then you get into the social manipulation issue. Look, we're being manipulated all the time, whether it be on social media, which has proven to be less helpful than people thought it would be in the beginning. So when the algorithm is biased and basically flawed and then utilized and put forward on other platforms like TikTok, for instance, or Instagram, all of a sudden, someone who has put in a purposefully, willfully misleading uh, algorithm or a biased algorithm, that will be driving a lot of social conversation. Then they talk about social surveillance using AI technology. People always already worry about Big Brother and closed circuit TV cameras and uh, the associated privacy concerns. I get it. In certain cities, you can hardly walk a step without being captured on camera. So they're really worried about the social surveillance tools that will be used by police departments, uh, maybe using artificial intelligence. Then it's data privacy. Because we talk about, like, for instance, the cyber attack out at Grenfell. We talk about the cyber attack on the healthcare Meditech system and the potential for AI tools to dig further into your privacy data. So that's another concern. Then, of course, there's another break forward uh, regarding biases due to AI, which is obviously detrimental. Then it's a socioeconomic inequality. This one here, I mean, I think it lends itself to a conversation that we had, for instance, regarding the rate of pay for CEOs, the 246 times their employees and the inflationary reasons as to why that is the way it is, which begs the question, what the hell is actually going on here? So when they talk about the socioeconomic inequality as a result of AI, so if AI drives job loss, another uh, cause for concern. Now, there will be people working on the back end on these platforms, but nowhere near the jobs that may indeed be displaced. So ethics. When we are using and relying so firmly on the digital world, there is major concerns with the ethical oversight associated with uh, AI. And at this point, as we have found out the hard way, governments move at a glacial pace. Governments and, for instance, the criminal justice system, unable to keep up with the pace of innovation and technological advancement. And that's absolutely going to be a problem with AI because it's not even someone you can reach out and touch necessarily. There will be snippets of data that are input into the algorithms coming from a variety of areas. And Consequently, ethical control is going to be extremely difficult. Now, on that one, you know, talking about government intervening on social media platforms, and we can get into that, and people relying on the government to make sure that all the crampdown that's required for AI is done, but then it begs the question. Who gets to be the arbiter of ethics? Who gets to be the arbiter of truth? Who gets to dictate as to what people are allowed to read and where they're allowed to see it? There you go. Then when we talk about the advent of warfare, we see the atrocities in various parts of the world at this moment in time. 
They're talking about autonomous weapons that are powered by AI. So here's one of the quotes. The key question for humanity today is whether to start a global AI arms race or to prevent it from starting. If any major military power pushes ahead with AI weapon development, a global arms race is virtually inevitable, and the end point of this technological trajectory is obvious. Autonomous weapons will become the uh, weapons of tomorrow, which is pretty scary when you read it out loud. And I'm not trying to scare anyone. We're just talking about things that have been identified. simply by industry watchers, but folks who are intimately involved in artificial intelligence, including Jeffrey Hinton, who's referred to as the godfather of intelligence, of artificial intelligence. Then they talk about the potential for the financial industry to be in upheaval because of AI algorithms. So while the online platforms should and will not be clouded by human judgment or emotions, they don't take into the contextual issues for the account and the account holders, their needs and their goals when they talk about their investments and how they approach it. So, for instance, back in 2010, that whole flash crash on the night capital, cla- capital flash crash, right? That was all about trade-happy algorithms that absolutely went berserk. And regardless of people's intention, they lost their shirt based on the fact that an algorithm did not understand exactly what their goals were. And a a trade-happy algorithm is inevitably going to see people make poor investment decisions and the financial upheaval it will cause. Then it's the loss of human influence. So if we rely in full on the digital world once again, you know, as opposed to human creativity, emotional expression, empathy, reasoning, critical thought, much of which will go by the wayside if we have a further and growing reliance on artificial intelligence. And you might be listening to this saying, none of this, uh, uh, you know, is associated with anything I do in my life. It probably is even though you might not be fully aware of it. So even things like we've been talking about, socioeconomic inequality, job loss, financial upheaval, you know, the lack of using human empathy, reasoning, creativity, emotional expression, peer communication, critical thought, much of which may indeed be lost more and more and eroded even quicker if this becomes the go-to. And then it's the whole issue, which I don't understand because I'm just simply not smart enough. The uncontrollable self-aware AI. There's a worry that it will progress in intelligence so rapidly that it will become sentient. I mean, again, that really sounds like torn from a script from a Hollywood feature film. But for the folks who work in artificial intelligence, they say that it is absolutely a possibility. And in fact, they're talking about some Google engineers who have already stated that the AI chatbot, LA, MDA, MDA, was sentient and speaking to them just like an old person would. So if the next big milestones involving making these systems with artificial general intelligence and eventually artificial super intelligence, where does it end? And what does it actually mean? So there's some pretty significant risks associated with artificial intelligence. And again, it's not hyperbole for the sake of. It's not to say that it can't be a very useful tool. But as we know, many useful tools in the beginning became very destructive tools in the end. So it's, I guess, how you use it, how you approach it. This all started with a conversation regarding artificial intelligence and how students in school would use it. Because, yes, you know, people do look for the shortcuts right? Work smarter, not harder. So if there's something out there that can assist me in beginning my research and or completing and crafting an entire report without me doing much more than inputting some uh, some text, boy, you know that that's going to be 
part of the conversation. And of course, we've heard some warnings from Mackenzie Broaders, who's the director of advocacy at Monsu. Talk about the academic repercussions if you do indeed plagiarize by using one of these platforms. So we can talk about some of the mitigation of some of these risks. So like organizing health data, which is happening in this country. It was actually a big part of the uh, money, the healthcare transfer dollars. That was one of the uh, earmarks. It was for the compilation of healthcare data. Then you move all the way to things that are much more futuristic and haven't been proven to be entirely reliable or safe at this moment. Things like self-driving cars. So all of this is all part of that big conversation. Here's a quote coming directly from uh, Jeffrey Hinton one more time. This is from uh, an interview that was conducted and broadcast on NPR. There is a serious danger that we'll get AI systems smarter than us fairly soon and that these things might get bad motives to take control. This isn't just a science fiction problem. This is a serious problem that's probably going to arrive fairly soon. And politicians need to be thinking about what to do about it now. And then, there you go, imagine having to have this type of reliance that we already have on politicians and political ideology and public policy. Now we're going to have to put the responsibility, as massive as it is, in the hands of politicians? Ugh. Let's take our final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Well, saucily, but rightfully suggested via email, is as opposed to me trying to break down a technology that I admittedly don't necessarily understand, maybe get someone on who's qualified to do so. <laughs> That's a... A fair point. So we'll try to do exactly that. Okay. And we mentioned that there was someone else who wanted to hear more about what's going on with the equalization formula. Most provinces, of course, are talking about the need to uh, reconfigure the formula itself. There's been minor tweaks over the last little bit, but this is basically the formula that was crafted under the Harper government some 10 years ago, or maybe even longer than 10 years ago. So it doesn't work. I mean, the fact that we're back on equalization, what is it, $218 million coming in the 24-25 fiscal year to this province, the first time since 2008 that will be the so-called have-nots, even though I think that's a really unfair label. We're one of a bunch of provinces that are on equalization. PEI, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, so the entirety of Atlantic Canada. Quebec and Ontario used to be the biggest economic drivers in the country, and the province of Manitoba. So the concern is because it is absolutely unfair. The issue is about the manipulation of the loopholes in the formula itself. People will, I think, always point to the province of Quebec and whether or not one province should be standing to receive about 60% of the entirety of the equalization pot, which is $21 billion, and they get 13.1. It comes down to a pretty fundamental issue for me. So basically, they have so-called cooked the books or used or manipulated that loophole in equalization by demonstrating their fiscal capacity, which is not really fair the way they do it. So because Hydro-Quebec in the province of Quebec intentionally subsidizes hydro rates for people in their province, it doesn't display the real fiscal capacity of Hydro-Quebec. So people used to say that hydro is backed out in full. It's not. It's just the way that Hydro-Quebec puts forward their revenue side numbers. So, if they raised their rates to market rates in similar jurisdictions, they would see their equalization go from $13 billion to somewhere in the neighborhood of 5 or $5.5 billion, which is a huge difference. There's also talking about adding a third important variable to the, uh, the equalization simulator, talking about adjusting it to... Uh, Pardon me, adjusting it in accordance with the consumer price index to reflect the relative cost of services. That only makes sense. And there's no earthly reason why that should not be accommodated and implemented in the formula itself. So with that third reform, we would see equalization associated with the province of Quebec be reduced to maybe somewhere in the neighborhood of $1 billion. 
Huge difference. And how is Hydro-Quebec able to subsidize rates to the tune which, with which they do, which has a direct relationship to our province, is the power that they purchase at the Upper Churchill. So when we are having this negotiation between this province and Quebec, Newfoundland Labrador Hydro, in Hydro-Quebec, you got the hope that we use this particular, I was going to say bullet, but that's not right, this particular issue as one of the driving points as to how unfair it is, not just the 1969 contract, but the way it manifests itself in equalization today. Quebec buys power from the Upper Churchill at a fixed rate of 0.2 cents per kilowatt hour. 0.2. Hydro-Quebec last year was profitable to the tune of $4.4 billion. So when they buy the cheap power... From, Hydro, from the Upper Churchill, that gives them the obvious and distinct ability to subsidize rates. And consequently, it's not just how much money they've made, some $30 billion since 1969, versus the around $3 billion we've made. It's not about the next 16 years. It's also including equalization. So while people might think that the province, or pardon me, the country is beholden to Quebec, and on many fronts that we absolutely are. You know, even though back in the Harper administration it was a nation within a nation, and some of that stuff doesn't really matter to me. You know, preserving culture and language, fair enough. But some of these things just put a sour taste in people's mouths. There is calls from many premiers, especially those who are not on equalization at this moment in time, to have a look at the formula. Notably, the province of, uh, pardon me, of Alberta is really quite vocal on this front. They're vocal on a lot of things. And this one, they're not wrong. Now, one thing they are wrong on, I would say, is that we've had successive premiers in Alberta suggest that the province pays into equalization, which is patently not true, right? It is absolutely inaccurate. Provinces don't pay into equalization. It's a revenue side formula based on individual taxes and revenues inside the province. We pay into equalization. The provincial government doesn't stroke a check into that $21 billion pot of equalization. So there are some of the things that we know absolutely can indeed be changed in the interest of fairness. It's an effort to make it equal as close to equal across the country to provide services. So it includes population-based, population density, geographical footprint, and different costs associated with what the health needs might be and social services needs might be, where you live, but we haven't accommodated or included all of the absolutely manageable components that should be part of a modernized equalization formula. So, yeah, for some people it will be deemed a economic shortcoming on behalf of the current governing Liberal Party as to why we're back in equalization. I don't know if that's fair or not, but people are telling me that, and you're welcome to offer that opinion on it. Or we're simply talking about the fact, like, for instance, there was a reduction in oil production last year. With the sea rows not being in operation, and we know another rig has been hauled in here now from Synovus for some work to be done, so there was a reduction in oil production, which absolutely has had a negative consequence on the provincial coffers, which is part of the revenue side portion of the equalization formula. So I don't know if it could be deemed a failure or not, but there you go. I see a, a news release from the PCs today regarding the news story uh, talking about emergency departments at St. Clair's and the Health Sciences. Experience above average number of patients this week and apparently the trend continues on. Now, over the holiday season, maybe the limited access to your family physician and or some limited hours at outpatient or primary care providers has made uh, has seen more people present to the ER. They are, well, pardon me, we are being told that many are presenting with uh, influenza-like illnesses throughout the holiday season. We know the respiratory illness issue is very real. I know a couple of people are really quite ill. I don't know what they got, but they're not feeling very well. So the PCs are asking, where is the Liberal government during this particular crisis at the ER? 
Fair enough, and I guess based on the news story today, but it's not that long ago, and in fact, it's been a repeated issue for the last number of years, where the ERs are reporting working in overcapacity repeatedly and for extended amounts of time. If you've known anyone who's been to an ER uh, in the last little while, it has been really quite onerous when I talk about the wait time and how triage takes place and there's a lot of different things you know seniors who are there for 12 18 hours people are in obviously racks of pain and so when you're waiting of course it's extremely frustrating I tell the tale of one of my pals all he needed was a few stitches and he was there for 12 hours it just seems like a bit much but where are the answers it always lies in full on human resources Plain and simple. That's why we've seen some emergency rooms close. That's why we've seen some emergency rooms move off to what they're calling urgent care clinics. So it's no more, no less than uh, human resources. The numbers of people working behind those curtains. So I don't know what is able to change in short order on that front, but that's one of the issues being brought forward quite forcefully by the Progressive Conservative Party of Newfoundland and Labrador today. I don't imagine the NDP are chiming in on the same front. Also being asked is what kind of point I'm trying to make about the cocaine and other drugs busted out of Grand Falls, Windsor. 1.2 kilograms of cocaine in the bus, of course, always going to be a weapon included in these bus. It also includes methamphetamine, hydromorphone, and whatever else is a various controlled substances. So I went on to say that these drugs may not have caused an overdose, but they possibly could. Because by the time they get to the street-level dealer, who knows what kind of stuff has been caught into it, as they say. So the point is, is that when we identify a variety of things happening in the country and call them a crisis, it's hard for me to understand how anyone would consider the overdose numbers as exactly that. Throughout the holiday season, the TV commercials were saying that some 20 Canadians per day were dropping dead as a result of an overdose having taken a toxic drug. It doesn't always have to include fentanyl, but very often it does. So again, we try to use the numbers. Sometimes what, how it works in this country is things move from west to east. And in British Columbia, it's especially bad. I mean, it is really bad. In the month of November, 200 British Columbians died from an overdose. And virtually every one of those, so says the coroner, was related to a toxic supply of drugs. So when you will hear different, you know, really unfortunately, some of the harm reduction policies and solutions, or potential help anyway, has been very politicized. You know, even things like safe injection sites and harm reduction policies. And yes, in the province of British Columbia, talk about a regulated supply of drugs. As opposed to talking about this as a healthcare issue, we'll talk about it as a political issue. Some columnists in particular really betray the issue, saying things like, well, all people are doing is taking their, morph- or their hydromorphone and selling it on the street, when, of course, what you can do is very simply have it administered in front of a healthcare professional at the site, unable to take it out and sell it on the street. So we should probably do ourselves a favor and get to a place and a position where we can talk about making things easier, better, and safer, as opposed to thinking that there's a political victory available in people's friggin' suffering. Anyway, last check on the Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at vocm.com, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.